What's better than an expert interview here on Baseball HQ Radio? Two expert interviews here on Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM. All next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 4th. It's show number 26 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. It's extra full. We'll have a feature interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire. Talk to him before the deadline. We discussed hidden RBI sources, surging offenses, some pitching Zacks, his boons and banes, and more. And we'll talk with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM. From after the deadline, Howard will talk about some of the players and prospects who moved via trade, and he'll have his boons and banes as well. Yes, two sets of boons and banes for your listening pleasure this week. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including traded players Mike Clevenger, Archie Bradley, Trevor Rosenthal, and many more. Henry Murphy has news from the American League, including traded players like Taiwan Walker, Robbie Ray, Jonathan Villar, and more, including some guys who didn't get traded to Toronto. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Hey, Texas! Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona right-handed starting pitcher Levi Kelly. And in extra innings, I'll talk about some thoughts coming out of the trade deadline. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The trade deadline has passed. We gotta talk some baseball. Was it the expanded playoffs? The short season? Both? Whatever the reason, it was a trade deadline that was energetic, bordering on frantic, and a lot of fun for those of us who watch these things. A lot of named players moving towards the National League, especially to San Diego, and a lot of prospects headed back to the American League, especially to Seattle. And we'll talk about all of it in this edition. So let's get it on in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire. Jason, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It has been, but glad to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, everything's pretty good up here in Canada. Weather's actually still pretty nice, so might spend the uh, afternoon out on the deck uh, having a couple of beers, listening to some baseball and reading the paper. I love doing that on a Sunday morning, I'll tell you what, or Sunday afternoon. Uh, I can't wait until we get that here uh, in Charlotte. I mean, it has been about two weeks. A lot, no, just last weekend. Last weekend, we were on the back porch and enjoying weather. I think it was about 70 degrees uh, by the time the sun went down. Beautiful. This week, it is full-on summer. It is in the 90s, and I don't want to be outside. And we have to wait Labor Day weekend. Looks like it's going to cool back down a little bit. But uh, I'm a little jealous because I, I want to be outside, but it feels like full-on Orlando here. Uh, I moved away from this six years ago, <laughs> and it's followed me up here. <laughs> Can get pretty humid up there, especially in the aftermath. You guys had some hurricanes down there that I don't know if you were hit directly, but that really raises the humidity in the whole region. No, it came that, that what was left of Laura hitched a ride on a cold front, a cold front, I'm using air quotes, uh, that came through. And so yesterday was incredibly humid because we had rain in the morning, uh, but today isn't looking much better uh, as far as, so I'm going to try to spend as much time indoors as I can today uh, and, and, and try again next weekend. 
So when it comes to fantasy baseball this year, uh, Jason, how many teams are you running? I am running nine teams this year, which is more than I thought I was going to be running this year. But I am running nine, and I probably need to whittle that down next year. How many of them are uh, March drafts, and how many of them did you get back in for some July action? Uh, great question. Most of them were March drafts. Uh, and some of them I did, I only had one July draft and that was a RotoWire online championship. Everything else was a March or an April draft. Cause we did do Derek Van Riper set up a, a triple threat league where we have an NL and AL, a mix with some interesting roster formats and you combine the points of all three. Uh, and so we did that one in April uh, and that progressed through April. So I think the first one was the first week and then second week and then third week of April. But other than that, most of my drafts were early. I wish I had done more July drafting though. What would you have done different, do you think? Not in hindsight, because you know what happened, but uh, if you can cast yourself back into that July time frame, we knew that the season was going to be shorter, among other things, and that created some interesting fantasy uh, permutations that you had to think through. But ha if you had done more July drafting, or even in the team you did draft in July, how did you adjust your strategy versus the early preseason March-April ones? You know, um, I pretty much eliminated SP threes, fours, and fives from my late draft plans. I wanted high-end uh, starters. Uh, 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 fours and fives were gone. I was looking at ones, twos, and threes or high-end relievers because I was of the firm belief that with a 30-man roster, managers were going to leverage more relievers uh, than they ever have. And that's held up rather well because uh, as a start of play today, 48% of wins have gone to relievers. And so relievers are taking a, a higher role and we're seeing more guys uh, being used and, and coming out. And, you know, your James Karinchaks, your Greg Sotos, uh, your Josh Stamonts, you know, those types that are coming out and, and holding a lot of value in, in the role they're having. I mean, Pete Fairbanks is leading the Rays with four wins and he's getting strikeouts as well. So it's like, you know, those those types of high octane relievers have more value this year than they would have previously uh, because they're they're not only helping with the ratios, helping with the strikeouts, but because of the way the managers are using staffs, they're getting decisions that they normally are getting overlooked on uh, or they miss out on. And so that's where it's been. Uh, and in this low, uh, you know, it varies by week, but overall offense has been down uh, this season. And so uh, you're seeing games being decided later in the in the game than they, than they uh, have been. Starters are getting pulled up for four innings. Uh, and so it is It is the year of the reliever. And I did draft one. Of, in fact, my best team is the one I drafted like that, where I drafted five relievers. Um, and that team's working out well for me. Uh, but that's really what I, I would have adjusted if I could read if we could have redrafted tout or re redrafted labor. Uh, I would have completely changed how I attack pitching because I went into it this season really emphasizing pitching uh, and starting pitching. And I would have completely adjusted it. Yeah, I, I talked about the uh, whole reliever win thing a couple of weeks ago here on uh, Baseball HQ Radio, and I thought the same thing you did, that it seemed like relievers were getting a lot more wins, and it has declined from sort of 70% starters, 30% relievers, to around 50-50 this year. And then that makes me wonder, given the fact that uh, a team like the Rays is doing so well, mixing and matching and accounting for the fact that they do have the expanded rosters, which gives them a lot more pitcher flexibility, how do you think this is going to play out next year, assuming we have a full season? Are more teams going to start adopting these kind of what are still unorthodox pitching strategies involving relievers, openers, those kinds of things, and, and eschewing starting pitchers? And one of the reasons I ask is starting pitchers are expensive, especially good ones, and they're very high risk. Uh, 
you know, this season, even in fantasy, you look at anybody who drafted Max Scherzer's kicking himself. Anybody who's drafting one of the starters who's hurt and out, Steven Strasburg, are kicking themselves and wishing they probably hadn't. So uh, how do you think this pitching strategy idea plays out in 2021, assuming the Rays do real well this year with it in 2020? Yeah, you know, to your point when you were saying the the starting pitching winning percentage, yeah, it has been right around 70%. And then in 2018, it went to a 62-38 split. Last year, 60-40, and this year, 52-48. And two years ago, you know, that's when the opener got hot when the race started it with Sergio Romo, when he opened against the Angels two times in a row because they had that heavy right-handed lineup. Oh, and that was out of necessity because they had so many guys hurt at, at the Major League and the AAA level, they didn't have anybody else to bring up. But I think that's what we're going to see again. I would love Major League Baseball to come out and say, next year we're going with 26-man rosters because there has been an absolute decimation of pitching depth league-wide. I mean, Tampa Bay's got 12 pitchers on the, on the IL right now, 12 Six of them are out for the year now, uh, and we're seeing that across the league. Miami, Texas, Pittsburgh, Seattle, a lot of teams are suffering. Uh, one team that isn't suffering is Oakland. I think Oakland's had two pitching injuries all season, but for the most part, pitching injuries are way up, and these guys aren't going to be back by March. A lot of these guys are shoulders, elbows. Guys are having Tommy John surgery right now, which puts them out all next year. I think it would be nice if Major League Baseball expanded and said, okay, look, we're going to go we're going to go 28-man roster next year too because – uh, it's going to be tough to put some of these uh, staffs together next year with this. And I think we're going to see more of this type of thing where where teams are going to leverage more of the relievers because it's working. You look right now league-wide at offense and, and the times through the order penalty, uh, which I've spent a lot of time talking about uh, in recent years, it's down this year because managers are like, you know, I don't have to leave this guy in. I can bring a reliever in instead of letting that starter stick around for a third time. And we're seeing it work. Uh, and so I think now that we've seen it work, and as long as the managers have the ability to use the extra thing, because 26-man roster was already here, but I, this 28 may need to stick around next year as well because uh, I, I'm worried what the pitching is going to look like by the end of the season, given that every day somebody else is going down. And one of the reasons that uh, I've heard uh, the most commonly cited reason for these pitcher injuries is that they didn't have enough time in spring training or the the summer spring training to ramp up, to get their work in, to get ready for the rigors of a full season. And that, again, raises a question about 2021. They assume, Assuming that they do have a full spring training, should we expect to see a decline in the uh, just the frequency and severity of the injuries that we're seeing in this shortened season? You would hope so. I mean, part of the issue is just, you know, pitchers getting ready. It's, it's always been such a, th- a thing. You know, they shut down at the end of the season, they take time off, and then they start and they build up. Well, then they, you know, they did that. Then they had to shut it down again, and then they had to start up again and under that accelerated timeline you mentioned. Uh, and so it, it doesn't surprise me that we've had an, an increased rate of injuries, but what I'm surprised is just how much how high that rate of increase has been. It has been uh, even more than I expected. I expected more. And we had, the, you know, the KBO was really our, our testing ground for that because they had the same start-stop-start start theory, but the injuries in the KBO were more on the hitting side and more of the lower half injuries, the hamstrings, the calves, the strains, and all that. We didn't see the rate of pitching. And so maybe it's, I would love to see somebody a lot smarter than me dive into it and say, okay, is it a velocity thing? 
because our pitchers throw hotter than the KBO pitchers do on the whole. And that's why there's an increased rate on the on the pitching side here is because the, these pitchers are putting more stress on the arm with the way they're pitching. Uh, is it because in the short season that the uh, every game is more important? You know, every game is worth 2.7 games than a normal schedule. So are, are pitchers putting more emphasis onto the pitches? Uh, if they're pitching, if they know they're they have a shorter hook, are they not trying to put anything in the tank and are and are putting more into each pitch? You know, some things to look at in the offseason. But I'm just again really surprised at the rate of pitching injury this year. I don't follow the KBO and I didn't really pay much attention to it while it was the only game in town. But does from your from your knowledge of what they do over there or what they were doing over there, do they pitch and use pitch use do pitcher usage the same as Major League Baseball is doing this year with shorter starting starter outings, more relievers, that kind of thing, or are they pretty much still six innings for the starter and then we go to the bullpen? So when I when it was the only game in town, I was watching a lot of it, uh, and from what I noticed. Uh, they were treating it like normal pitching. I mean, I would see guys out there into the hundred pitch count, and, and that was it. It was surprising to me, but again, the average uh, the average velocity over there is down a couple of miles from where we see it here uh, on state side. Most guys, you know, if you think back to the baseball, you know, fifteen years ago when guys were throwing like a, a guy throwing ninety five was like, wow, this guy throws ninety five. Well, if you're throwing ninety five in the KBO, like you are the flamethrower. Uh, you know, you have one of the best fastballs over there. And so, uh, but when I watched some of these games, I would routinely see guys working in the hundred uh, plus pitch count. And it was surprising to me. Um, but again, they didn't have, they didn't have the amount of injuries, but the issue over there is bullpens are bad. Uh, and so like you try to milk your starting pitching because their bullpens are really bad on the whole. There are some teams that are better than others, but they have some bad bullpens. So these starters, uh, these managers will try to get as much out of their starters as they can. Well, it certainly has been an interesting season so far, as short as it is. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, Jason, is this weird disconnect between we're a month into the season where in a normal season we'd just be trying to figure out where we stand, you know, what are we going to do for the balance of the year, and and bide our time until we get to the stretch run. But this year we're a month into the season and we're in the stretch run already. How has that changed strategy in, in fantasy baseball, do you think? Yeah, it is. Uh, you really have to look at it and and say, all right, what can I attack? And I'll give you an example. You know, you and I are both in tout and I'm my offense has been decimated by injuries. There's no hope for me in most of the offensive categories. I can't do anything in home runs and RBIs, uh, OBP, but I can make a dent in steals and I've got good pitching uh, despite injuries, you know, uh, losing uh, Charlie Morton. Losing Odorizzi, a couple. I've even forgot a couple of guys I've already had to cut that are gone for the year. But I'm trying. You know, if you recall, a couple of years ago when Laura Michaels was down in the standings, Laura punted all of his offense and went like whole hog into his pitching to get to that 60 point threshold. And that's one of the things I'm doing right now. You know, I have looked at it and said, there's nothing I can do. And so like, I trade the other day, I traded JD Martinez and Chad green for Brett Gardner and, and Tyler glass. Now to Jeff Erickson worked out really well for me in week one, glass now gets 13 strikeouts for me. Uh, Brett Gardner's playing a little bit, but I got him for stolen bases. Cause I need to close the gap in stolen bases, but I got Chad Green off my team as he gave up the three home runs to the Mets the other day. Uh, and that worked out well. So I'm like, I'm looking at it saying, okay, where can I, where can I do within the categories now uh, to try to get to a certain goal? There's a couple of leagues where I'm in contention. And so I'm making, making short-term plays there. And uh, just yesterday in a league, 
Uh, I traded for two expiring contracts. I, I have Aaron Savali and James Karinchak on good deals in year one, and I traded both of those guys away to get Garrett Cole and Tyler Glass now because I can make up ground in the starting pitching strikeouts and wins, but I just gave up really good future contracts to pursue that. And I'm I'm fine doing that because I'd like to I'd like to have a win under my belt. Uh, and so just really you have to make you, you can't play patience. You gotta get into it. You got four weeks left. It's a different sort of challenge when you're talking about a keeper league. So when when you make a deal like that and you trade away such prized value contracts as you mentioned is this because you think you have a chance to win the overall or would you have done it to move from say sixth to third uh no it's for the chance to win the overall uh because it, you know things are so tightly packed when i looked at it and i was like yeah there's a path to uh there's a path to success there but then you know somebody else in the league ends up trading uh nelson cruz and mitch Moreland to the first place team for Elvis Andrus and Pat Vileka. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, so, you know, that was after my, maybe it was a reaction to say, okay, I don't know. But it, that, that part was frustrating when I, when I see that, but uh, no, cause I was, my team is currently sitting in fifth place and fifth place is the first reserve pick in our draft. And that's always a valued spot uh, in that I can trade that spot if I want to as well. So I could have just said, okay, if I finish fifth, great. I've got the first reserve pick. I can have the best minor league guy that's not currently on a roster, or I can trade the spot for something of value. But when I'm looking at it, say, okay, I'm 13 points out of first place. There's a path here, and here's where my path is. I, I make that decision. How did the league respond to that uh, th- that bad trade? Uh, you p- you posted it on Twitter, and I, uh, as soon as I saw it, I thought, well, man, something's hinky about that because nobody's that dumb. But of course, uh, all of us have played in leagues where every so often there is somebody who's that dumb. And in a second, I'll give my example. But what? How did the league respond to that? Uh, there has been no response yet. Uh, I had to wake up at three o'clock in the morning because my dog wanted to go outside. And so I took her outside and I checked my phone and I just left a comment. And nobody else has replied. So either everybody's cool with it or nobody else has seen it yet. Uh, I, I don't. And the thing is, it's like not like either guys had a great deal. Andrus is in a second year, $15 contract, not somebody you would keep. Um, and Pavleka is Pavleka. I mean, he's playing this year because it's Baltimore and, and they needed something. And uh, yeah, I've got Pat Vileka in and tout. But it's just because options A and B were gone and I had to pick up option C. But that's not if you trade two expiring contracts of and especially at the level that Cruz and uh and Moreland are producing. Nobody knew they were available. Yeah, they're expiring contracts, but you know, you shop those types of guys around. Ultimately, that's what always drives me nuts in keeper leagues is uh, you know, you should say, hey, these guys, you know, you, you should shop names around. Uh you know, to see what's that, to see what you can get, uh, rather than just hey, here, fine, take this. Uh, I don't know, it just that just frustrating. That's one of the people hate dump trade leagues, but at the same point, you know, there's ways to attack it. Uh, I've seen some leagues where it's a posting thing, like hey, you have to these guys are out. You can't trade anybody that hasn't been put on the block. Uh, you know, uh, that's one way to put. That's one way to uh, hold those trades off. I played in a home league years ago, AL only four by four, and the the shark in the league was sitting ninth or tenth, I think, and was out of it. And then he picked on one of the minnows, and he he acquired, I'm going to say, Rafael Palmero, Ivan Rodriguez, and Jay Buner, who was on his way to a 140 RBI season at the time, I I think, and uh, and he got and he gave up a package headlined headlined by Jeff Manto, and of course the league really got into an uproar and. In the aftermath of it, two other guys in the league, including the Sharks' brother, traded away like Ken Griffey Jr., all the big stars of the day, 
to the second place team in the league just to make sure that the Shark would not win the league. And this caused an enormous amount of rancor in the league. It almost finished the league. And we ended up having to really make huge adjustments in our trading rules and, and so forth. That, that that's I don't mind the, these bad trades, but what, what worries me about them is the impact they can have on the willingness of other guys in the league to keep playing, knowing that this guy's in the league and can, that anybody in the league can do something like that that so upsets the balance of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm my health figure, and I've always said the same thing. I'm also, you know, people are like, oh, you should have a trade veto in your league. And I disagree. I mean, the only reason you should have a trade veto is if you can prove collusion. Otherwise, it, you know, it's it's uh, eyes and the beauty of the uh, beholder, however the phrase. But I'm not, I'm also not for trade vetoes. Uh, so it's like I, I can I can be upset, like, hey, wow, that trade got made. Why? But I'm also not saying this needs to be vetoed and overturned because I'm not for it unless I can say, you know, you're a colluder uh, and I need to be able to say that to your face to be able to say, you know, you did this on purpose. What are you doing? Uh, and I'm not willing to say that to anybody without you, know, you have to have proof of that because that's why this veto is is more about jealousy. Like, I can't believe I didn't get that trade. I'm going to use the veto tool in, in, the, in, the, in the software and say, nope, don't like that trade. And then it gets overturned. Well, one of the problems, the biggest problem I have with vetoes is that um, other guys who are outside the trade don't look at it from the point of view of the league, don't right. look at it from the point, of the point of view of the two teams involved. They look at it from the point of view of how it affects them. And if they look at it and go, oh, this is a really good trade that moves both guys up in the categories and in all instances past me, I'm vetoing it because I don't want to lose a bunch of points. And that's yeah. really how it ought not to be because uh, the, the reason to veto a trade, I, I'm totally with you. Absent collusion, you're basically asking to substitute your view of the world and your baseball acumen for the people involved in the trade. And really, unless you're maybe Billy Bean or, or somebody like that, you don't have that right. Right. Yep. Fully agree. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire. And Jason, in your Rotowire column, Collette Calls, uh, last week, you analyzed Major League rosters for what you called hidden RBI chances. Before we talk about guys, uh, what was the method there? So uh, if you go into the baseball reference, uh, go into the uh, the bowels, if you will, of baseball reference, one of the stats that they have that I like taking a look at throughout the year is if you go to the situational hitting part, uh, there's a base runners area and they they break it down with base runners. And, and then there's two there's two columns, base runners and base runners scored. And then they do a percentage of like how many base runners scored from your batted ball events. Uh, and the league wide average over the last three years has been right about it's like 14.5 to 14.7 percent. So just round up and say 15 percent. Uh, I like to look at guy take a look at guys that are overperforming that by a uh, by a strata like they're not a, like, hey, 20 percent is overperforming, whatever. I'm talking about like 25 to 30, you know, 25 and up. Who are those guys? And then who are the guys that are like in a single, uh, you know, 7% lower, those types of guys. So I'm looking for guys that, okay, we've, we squeeze enough juice out of that one time to move on and, and guys that are underperforming and say, okay, where are we with that? So I, I like to look at that once, uh, usually write about it once a year, but I use that as a research tool for myself to say, okay, who should I target in a trade? Who should I go pick up? based on this type of thing because uh and we'll get to it in a second like one of the guys i wrote about as an underperformer is having a hell of a week uh this week so yay me <laughs> <laughs> when i think about the idea and i did a column about this years ago at baseballhq.com in a research piece that was focused on team on base percentage not including the guy being being measured and his batting order position because of course that has a huge influence on the uh, number of rbis that you're going to get 
and I came up with some formula and it never caught on and I, I moved on with my life. So what did you do in your research to look at these over and or under performers and allow for the fact that some of them are batting fourth and fifth and some of them are batting seventh and eighth. And so that's the thing I, you, we, we know that RBI chances, the, the higher you are in the lineup, you know, three, four, five, the better you are for RBI chances. But we, what's, what's weird this year is with universal DH, we, it's all, it's all getting thrown out because typically in the national league, if you're a leadoff hitter in the national league, you're impacted by obviously pitchers hitting uh, how they're attacking the eighth place hitter. But now that we have the same set of rules across both leagues, you know, it's, it's a little different. Like Fernando Tatis is having a hell of a year uh, driving in runs from the leadoff spot. And yeah, a lot of it's him driving himself. He's hit 12 home runs. That's going to happen. Uh, but if that's, that's where things have been a little different, but I try to take a look at where are guys, where are guys getting their RBIs for like if they're hitting in the A spot and driving in a bunch of runs, that's like a red flag. That's not holding up unless everything in front of them just continues to surge. Uh, but so that's really what I'm looking for is who's who's under who's underperforming, who's overperforming, and where are they doing it from in the lineup to see if there's a uh, a change in their future coming. Home runs wouldn't be counted in base runners driven in, right? Uh. No, it's well. It's like somebody's on base. Like solo shots aren't going to count, but it's right. like the, the way the status, the way the status contributed says, base runners who scored by the batter is how is how that particular thing is measured. So it's you know that would be part of it. Huh. I wonder if they count his RBI in the total of base runners who scored because he really wasn't a base runner when he started the at-bat. But it doesn't matter. It's just uh, something I'll look into uh, myself to try to figure out what's going on there because home runs would really affect the uh, the count if, uh, as you mentioned, Tatis has 12 home runs. He's got 12 RBIs right away, and, and uh, even from the top of the order, that's pretty good production. So you mentioned you're looking at guys who are overproducing RBIs, again, uh, with some adjustment made for lineup positions. Who are some of these hitters, Jason, and why shouldn't they be producing to the level they are? So like three guys I look at in particular, and the league leader uh, right now is Martin Maldonado. Hitting as catcher, hitting eighth, has driven in 30% of his runners. And that's that's highly unusual, both from the position uh, you know, the, uh, from a catcher hitting in the bottom of the lineup and somebody uh, of limited offensive abilities, as Martin Maldonado is. Uh, you know, Charlie Blackman's hitting third, not hitting leadoff anymore, but even hitting third, he's driving in 27% of his runners. Uh, and Anthony Santander hitting second, also driving in 27% of his runners. Understand no major league regular last season drove in that much. You know, the, uh, the highest, uh, the highest was 24%. So these guys are outperforming what happened last year. Now in a, in a short season, anything's possible. You know, these guys could finish at this level, but on the whole, over the past couple of years, that hasn't happened. That stuff has, that has regressed. And like last year, the, when I consider regular, I'm talking anybody over 300 plate appearances, the best performing regular last year was Josh Fegley. Again, a catcher doing something unusual, but Josh Begley drove in 24% of his runners last year. Uh, and Josh Begley, another guy of limited offensive capabilities, but he made the most of his opportunities last year. And that's what Maldonado has done so far. And, and Blackman, uh, they've had a lot of games at Coors Field, and that's helped. And Santander uh, has, you know, they've played a lot of games in Baltimore. That certainly helps him uh, as well. It strikes me that what you're looking at really here is a lot of luck in the case of guys who are overproducing and possibly underproducing. It starts to make me think of kind of the BABIP adjustments that we look at and, and those kinds of things where 
we expect that there's a league average. You said it's uh, you know in the mid-teens percentage that of these runners who are going to get driven in, and anybody who's at 27, which is 10 points too high, is likely to self-correct, and anybody who's at 7 is likely to self-correct and move to towards the mean, as we always expect in, in long-term baseball. Is it just a luck thing primarily that you're looking at in this research, that these guys just seem to be unusually lucky with runners in scoring position? Uh, like, are their batting averages way higher with batting, with runners on versus runners not on? And I think a good example of a good example of this would be uh, it's kind of funny, but DJ LeMahieu. You know, you look at last year, LeMahieu had a breakout season for the Yankees, uh, and and you look back at where the season came from. DJ LeMahieu hit leadoff for the Yankees. He drove in 73 runs from the leadoff spot last year and hit 392 with runners in scoring position. Now, if you look back at his history, and, and hitting with runners in scoring position is not some kind of sticky scale that translate year to year. I mean, we we all know of uh, uh, the wrench, uh, Alan Craig, uh, with uh, with St. Louis, two years in a row was like ungodly hitting with runners in scoring position and then just completely dropped off the face of the earth. But it's not a it's not a stickiness skill here. But yeah, that's what LeMahieu did last year. Did it exceedingly well, drove in 73 runs. And so you look at it and say, okay, for the for his career, he's normally a 280, 290 hitter with runners in scoring position, maybe 300. Okay, that's going to come down. Well, he's hitting 417 with runners in scoring position this year, which is really weird, but he just hasn't played. A, he's only driven in six runs because he hasn't played. He may have missed a big chunk of time uh, with the thumb injury, but it's just like he's doing that. But you have to look at the conditions in, you know, uh, especially in front of the guy who's in front of this guy is, are they getting a lot of opportunities because somebody's having a breakout year in front of him in the lineup and is doing great with an OBP. And so they're just presented with more opportunities there and it's a volume thing. So you, you have to look at conditions. You can't just say, okay, the elevated guy hit four, had a four forty uh bad bip. So this year it's going to come down. I mean, again, LeMahieu, you looked at it and said, but he's just a good hitter and you have to consider, you know, 392 may not be sustainable 417, probably not sustainable either, but Overall, he's just a good hitter, and he produces when he ha- when he has the opportunity to do so because he uses in this day and age where we see guys, you know, uh, we saw a six man outfield against uh, uh, Miguel Cabrera with Kansas City when they took two infielders and put them in the grass uh, on the outfield because they know he's not going to beat out an infield grounder with all these shifts and everything. Lemayhew is, is the guy because he hits he hits to all fields. You can't shift him, and so he can find his he can find the hole in your defense because you cannot position him to get outs. And that's really where you're seeing guys succeed or guys that aren't overly uh, relying upon pull hitting for their success. Yeah, I still see from time to time people saying that a hitter with a, you know, a 350 BABIP is is doomed to regress to the to his mean or with a guy with a 280 BABIP is doomed to, or fated to rise to his mean. Uh, to the league mean of 30% or th- batting 300, and that's not true. We've pr- we've seen time and again that a really good hitter is going to have an above-average Babbitt because he's a really good hitter. Lots of line drives, like you said, using all fields, like you said. I remember when this whole idea first came out, I did some research, and uh, one of the things that popped out at me is Manny Ramirez has a you know 360 uh, Babbitt. Well, he's doomed to regress, right? No, because he's been doing it every year since he got into the big leagues because he hits the ball really, really hard. And that was without counting home runs, of course. I've never seen research on the idea in particular, Jason, but what research I have seen tells me that there is a difference for batters, for some batters, hitting off pitchers in the stretch versus hitting on pitchers in the full windup. 
but I've never seen anything relating to whether the runner was in scoring position or not in scoring position. We should just expect that the hitter's going to hit roughly as he hits, irrespective of the, the situation with runners notwithstanding clutch hitting and all of the, those kinds of things. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, it is for me. I mean, I think the whole clutch thing comes from broadcasters talking about it. I mean, you and I both watched baseballs in the 80s. I mean, Pat Tabler was the clutch hitter. I mean, he was the guy that you want. He was Mr. Runners in scoring position. And that that was the that was the uh, the reputation. But go look at the numbers and they don't bear themselves out. I think he had one great year where it's like, oh, wow, this guy was great. But on the whole, he wasn't that good. Uh, same thing with like Madison Bumgarner. He's a pitcher that should be hitting. Well, go look at Madison Bumgarner's hitting numbers from 2017, 18, and 19. They're not good. But in 14 and 15, they were good. And that reputation is as hung on because he was, you know, he was a good hitting pitcher for two years. But then recent memory, not so good. But you look at the overall numbers. Oh, yeah, he said home runs. He must be good. No, he wasn't. Uh, so some of that stuff comes down to reputation. Uh, and that's where it is. Narrative. I have one other question about this, and I'm curious about what you think about the impact of the abilities of the runners on base and the willingness of the management of the of the team to be aggressive on the base paths. So if you have two identical hitters in two, in two roughly identical teams' contexts and sit, hitting from the same position in the, in the batting order, especially high up in the batting order, first or second, and you know that, for instance, you got a San Diego where they're going to run. They steal bases a lot. They're very aggressive on the base paths. Even stuff like going first to third, you know, taking, taking shots on close, wild pitches, all this kind of stuff. They're very aggressive on the base paths. That also seems to me could have an impact on the ability of guys to drive runners in because one guy, they both come up with a, with a base runner on first. First, in one instance, the guy steals second, and the other one, he stands near first base and has to be driven in with an extra base hit. Base running yep. seems like it could have a real impact here as well. Yeah, I'm sure it could. I mean, you mentioned the Padres. You know, they have 30 stolen bases as a team, lead the National League uh, with that. But then you look at Seattle, who leads all of baseball with 37 steals. And Seattle, they need to run to generate runs because they just don't have the offense uh, overall. And so they have been aggressive on the base pass to move guys in the scoring position to increase uh, their chances of scoring to that. But then conversely, you look down at the bottom, the, the Twins, seven stolen bases as a team because they don't want to risk getting the out in the bases with the with the bats they have up and down that lineup. And that's even with guys like Jorge Polanco severe, really struggling this year, but they don't want to risk the outs in the base pass. The White Sox who have a lot of thunder in their lineup, eight steals as an entire team. They don't want to risk the outs, whereas other teams who are, are limited in their offensive capabilities need to, need to try to advance those. Cleveland, we all know how bad their outfield offense has been. They have 15 stolen bases as a team because they're trying to help generate generate runs but it, it, more often than not if you've got the thunder in your lineup you don't you just don't run as much because you're like you know that guy can hit a, he can hit a double and maybe that guy's going to score from first anyhow he's going to hit a home run that guy's going to score from first why risk trying to steal second base so did you notice any correlation between teams with bad overall offenses and and unusual outliers high on the RBI side and the inverse where station to station teams tended to have more underperformers based on every, all, all things being equal. I actually didn't take that angle. I mean, I looked at, when you look at some of the guys that I had listed as underperformers, they tend to come from, you know, what should be good offenses on paper. I mean, I mentioned earlier, the one guy I, I, I listed Vlad jr. As a guy that was underperforming and this week he's driven in nine runs. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with, hey, I'm, he's now playing more games uh, in Buffalo. 
and Buffalo has been very good for the Toronto offense and offense overall. Uh, and then the perfect storm of them facing Boston pitching a couple of days was even better because that staff really stinks. And it's so, like it's like that happens well. But yeah, he had nine runs driven in this week. And Randall Gritchick's another guy that enjoyed that kind of success. You know, Pete Alonso uh, has had struggles this year, but then he hit the three run home run against the Yankees, and that helped. And then the one guy that really intrigues me is Josh Reddick. The Astros are hitting him all over the lineup, and he has struggled to drive in runs only because I think Preston Tucker's just stealing them all. Preston Tucker's, I mean, he's driving in runs left and right, and, and he's stealing them all. And But, you know, Reddick, they've moved him around the lineup uh, to try to get him some more opportunities. And, like, that's a guy that I'm willing to target in an AL-only format uh, because you look at he's underperforming, and the, and the opportunities are there for him. And if he can – and he's hitting. You look at his overall numbers, and his overall numbers are good. Uh, it's just that with, with runners on base, they're not where they normally are. And so he's a guy that I would be willing to take a chance on. Just to be clear, Kyle Tucker, not Preston Tucker. Uh, uh, Preston oh, yeah. Tucker's <laughs> may, maybe uh, he's retired and maybe worse uh, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere out there. Preston Tucker's in the KBL. <laughs> oh, is he? I yes. didn't know that. I did not know that. He's probably yes. doing real well, too. Yeah, you know, he's in the KBL. Funny story, uh, you mentioned Vladimir Guerrero doing well in Buffalo. I, I watch a lot of Jays games living where I do, and I have some Jays in some of my fantasy teams. And the other night, uh, Guerrero drove in a couple of runs and had a 115-mile-an-hour line drive uh, base hit. And the, the announcers were talking about, hey, he's driving in a lot of runs. And uh, the the narrative that they came up with was, he he did his triple A time in Buffalo, so the park makes him comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk about a couple of examples from your article, Jason, about underperformers because I have Edward Encarnacion on all three of my fantasy teams that I'm running, and of course he's killing me on all three of them. Why is there any hope for Edward Encarnacion to rebound at least as far as a run producer? Uh, so you all know, preface this. This guy's one of my favorite hitters in baseball. Always has been. Uh, and so, like, I, I feel like I have a, a special relationship with this guy, and I know him too well. Uh, the thing about Edwin Encarnacion, he he always struggles the first month of the season, always. Uh, it has always been a thing. Like, I never end up with him on my team, but I love trying to acquire him after that slow first month. And so, like, I went back and looked at his numbers over the last five years, and the first month, his weighted runs created plus is right at league average in the first month of the season. So even because, he, you know, he still earns his walks – but then in the second month, 20% above league average. Third month, 50% above league average. So he always, always starts slow, but then heats up. And you started to see some of that this week. And so it's like if you have if you have them, yeah, you've had to wear a bad first few weeks, but good times are coming ahead. Uh, if you can acquire him in your leagues, I know a lot of trade deadlines are this week in leagues. If you can go out and make the acquisition – you don't have to worry about the 179. That's already been sucked up by somebody else. You don't have to worry about that. You get to start with a 0, 0, 0 slash line and then enjoy what's moving forward. And so I would he's somebody that I would be targeting uh, if you can acquire him this week. And you called uh, Adalberto Mondesi, and I'm quoting here, the oddball on the list. How come? Uh, well, with him, he's actually hitting better with runners on base than he is with nobody on base. But the problem is your manager's not going to move you up the lineup until you hit better. <laughs> I mean, if you hit, like for him, he's hitting 220 overall, but he's hitting 234 with runners in scoring position with runners on base. Uh, but the manager's not going to say, you know what, I'm moving you from eighth to second uh, to that. So it's like right now, that's what the problem is, is he's hitting eighth because his overall average stinks. Uh, and then you know, he and he and Nicky Lopez are, are and actually Nicky Lopez has been moved up to the second part of the lineup. And the funny thing about Nicky Lopez, I like to bring up, 
He's 0 for 4 in stolen bases this year. So it's like Mike Matheny, we were all worried that when Ned Yost left and Matheny came in that they were going to stop running. No, Kansas City's still running, but they've even given given Nicky Lopez four attempts and he has yet to steal a base. Uh, and, but the Royals are fifth in the league with 23 steals. Sometimes it's really hard to figure out. Uh, in an earlier article at Rotowire in Collette Calls about the sudden surge in offense, you mentioned the possibility that the baseballs might have changed. I've read that a lot. But you pointed to something else about pitching. What was that? Uh, I've written a few things uh, <clears throat> around that. I mean, part of it, what I looked at was that with the with the increase, and we talked a little about it earlier, that I, I fully expected managers to leverage the extra arms they were going to have. And that I thought offense was going to take a step back this year because the relievers were going to be leveraged more and we weren't going to see as much time to the order penalty. Uh, that has that has indeed played out uh, in offense. And we've seen offense. The ironic part was the offense was really slow. I write an article and said offense has opted out of the season and then offense has its best week of the year, what, two weeks ago? And then it's come back. So for one week, offense was off the charts. And then it started, if you look the week by week splits, uh, it's now come back down a little bit this week. Um, as we're talking about the, the super bouncy ball, it seems like we're trying to figure out is if it's 2019 baseball, or the 2018 baseball is here in 2020. I think it depends on games because sometimes you see a guy hit one. You're like, that has no business getting out of the yard, but it does. And then you see another one where the guy hammers it. It doesn't get out of the yard. So it's, I don't know if there's consistency with the baseball, um, but the fact that we have seen uh, a higher leverage of relievers, um, being used and, and, and managers not taking that extra chance uh, has overall impacted offense uh, that we we honestly, as a whole, were not expecting. We thought we would just continue on the 2019 levels, but we haven't. Do you think also that the fact that starters are coming out earlier makes them more effective in their next start because they don't get pitched to exhaustion in start number one? Maybe they're a little stronger in start number two, and that's affecting their their ability to get guys out in a good way? Yeah, I think that that could that could also help. I think one of the weirdness, the weird parts of it though, is just that these guys are facing the same teams throughout the year, and it's like they they have they're not being spread around the league. It's I think I looked at something, uh, I forgot who the stat was, but somebody has faced the Mets four times this year already, and that's crazy. It's six, seven starts they face the same team four times, uh, and I I just can't wrap my head around that particular stat. Like you're getting that much exposure. Uh, to that, and you could have you could have even more of that. So you have to worry about some familiarity uh, coming into play as well with some of these guys, especially guys with new pitches. Like, okay, you saw him for the first time. Oh wow, he looks different. Now you're going to get him again, uh, and we'll see what happens that time. But with the overall exposure to the same core group of teams, it's going to be interesting. The that in the second half of the season, I think it really gets interesting come playoff time because you know advance. Advanced scouting is one thing we don't have. I mean, everybody's doing it by video. There's not, there's nobody sitting in the stands, nobody trying to – you can't do that. And so all scouting, if it's even being done, is being done with uh, on video. We've seen the players – Alex Spire wrote a great piece about a week and a half ago talking about how the, the hitters sorely miss the in-game video, being able to run down into the tunnel, doing some things. That stuff has been restricted. Uh, and J.D. Martinez has been very vocal about it. And you look at his numbers, his numbers suck this year. Uh, like he's been like, hey, we, you know, I missed this. We need this. I need to be able to do this. And they don't have that. So I think when we come to playoff time, all bets are off because it could be the first time some of these teams have seen each other, even an AL versus AL, since 2019. 
I've read about and talked about the uh, idea of familiarity, that because of the extremely unbalanced schedules, that there's going to be a lot of the situations you mentioned where a certain pitcher just finds himself playing the same team over and over again. But who do you think it helps? Because I've heard it both ways, that the the hitters benefit because they now they learn the pitcher, but the pitcher also benefits because he learns the hitter. Which way do you come down on that seesaw? I lean towards the I lean towards the pitchers, especially when we saw early on in the season where you know offense was so far down because sometimes they're seeing these guys for the first time. Yeah, I mean they were from what I've read, they're allowed to look at an iPad and watch video results of something, but then it, it's something different uh, to see you know, to to uh, see what a pitcher's stuff looks like. You're, you're a guy that you've seen, you're used to seeing, and then like I said, he breaks out a new pitch, and all of a sudden you're like, that's not the same guy that I'm used to seeing. This looks different, and then maybe next time you make the adjustment around. But even you know, we've seen some guys where they get beat up in their first start, but then the second start they do better against the same team. You know, they didn't change any; they didn't change their stuff, but maybe their execution of that stuff. I mean, pitching is all about disrupting timing, and if you can execute, uh, if you can locate, it, it's that's the big difference between having a good start and having a bad start. You can have great stuff, but if you can't locate it, hitters will make you pay for it. But if you have, even if you have average stuff and you can locate it where you need to be, like if uh, people were recording this on on the tw- on the thirtieth, if you watch the 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 Pablo Lopez versus Josh Fleming start between Tampa Bay and Miami, as I did, two guys with average stuff, especially Fleming. I mean, Fleming is a back end guy, but it was change it was uh, cutters and changeups um, uh, and sinkers, and he was he avoided the strike zone, and he consistently hit those spots, and he had success. He had a Division three pitcher, and that is 2-0 at the major league level because he's hitting his spots. He doesn't light up a radar gun, barely acknowledges a radar gun, but he's hitting his spots, and that's what counts. Okay, but it, so if uh, Miami gets to see this same guy two or three more times as we're talking about, do their hitters benefit from the fact that in the even in the aftermath of it, somebody can go to them and say, "Look, you're facing this same guy again. Remember, the last time you faced him, you were swinging at a lot of pitches out of the zone. You got to be more patient." So, does that benefit? That obviously benefits them. But is there an offsetting benefit to him because he's had a crack at this lineup and he's going to see the same hitters again? He knows what got them out. Then it's a cat and mouse kind of game, right? It really is, and that's where you, uh, even if you watch things in game, you, one of the things I like to watch in game is how pitchers uh, execute their plan. If you watch, especially if you watch the second time through the lineup, pay attention to what the pitcher's doing the first time through the lineup. Are they throwing a lot of first pitch non fastballs for strikes, uh, or if you know they have, if you know they have a breaking ball but they're not using it, are they saving it for the second time through? Watch the watch the order of execution of the pitch in the first sequence and then compare it to how they do that same batter the second time through. So the first time through, maybe they were all fastball changeup and then it's fastball breaking ball. And then the changeup maybe doesn't even appear, but that's one of the fascinations I like watching when I'm watching a pitcher is how are they attacking that guy from the first time through the second time through, or how, how is that hitter adjusting? One of the fascinating matchups earlier this week, uh, last weekend was Blake Snell versus Luke Voigt. The, the scouting report on Luke Voigt is pound him in, pound him in and pound him in up high with a fastball and then try to get him chasing something away. And they were successful in doing that. But then they came in again and Luke Voigt hit a home run off Blake Snell. This is like what he made the adjustment. And so that's one of the, you know, I just like 
that's my that's my fun in watching a game is watching the in-game adjustments that both pitchers and hitters make because they know when they come to the plate. All right, last time this guy threw me fastballs in and changeups away. So if I get a fastball in, I'm looking for it early and I'm going to do something with it. And then you get a first pitch changeup and they're like, uh oh, that wasn't what I was looking for. And so that's it's it's a it's a chess game and it's a fun one to watch. Well, you mentioned the increased importance of bullpens. And we've seen a lot of top shelf and, you know, pretty good second level closers have lost their jobs already this year uh, by hook or by crook, sometimes underperformance, a few guys getting hurt and so on. What can fantasy owners do, do you think, to take advantage of this unpredictable, unsettled closer situation pretty much across baseball? Uh, You have to watch the game. Obviously, you have to watch the game, watch the relievers, and see whose stuff is playing out. I think the great, great example we have right now is Kansas City. I mean, yesterday they trade Trevor Rosenthal. Trevor Rosenthal was an afterthought when he got acquired by Kansas City. They turned him into Edward Oliveras uh, and a player to be named later, which is a great deal for Kansas City. But now you look at their bullpen, uh, and is it going to be Greg Holland, who has experience but doesn't have the stuff that he had? Uh, Is it going to be Ian Kennedy, who had the job last year but has not done well this year? Scott Barlow, Josh Stomet, who knows? And even Mike Matheny's comments this morning, haven't committed one way or another. Uh, so we'll see where that goes, but you really have to watch it and say, where are guys pitching uh, and use your, you know, look at the bullpen usage patterns. If a guy's been pitching mostly six or seventh inning, he's not jumping to the ninth inning. He just, they if they're not using him in high leverage, if he's just been mostly medium leverage, he's not going from medium to high, just like that. You have to check where these guys are being used. And so that's my favorite thing is just to say, okay, where is where is this guy being used? Is he being trusted trusted in high leverage already? Okay, he'll come, he'll have the next shot. We saw Greg Soto. Greg Soto got his got his first save yesterday. Uh, that's a guy who's been pitching really well out of the Detroit bullpen. Looks much better than what he did last year. Uh, Joe Jimenez has not looked good, um, and we've seen uh, Jose Cisnero uh, get a save. We've seen Greg Soto get a save now. Uh, and you just have to pay attention where guys are being used and, and build from there. It's not always the guy with the best stuff. It's where that guy is being trusted currently is going to dictate what his next step is. I agree with what you're saying totally, about, especially about charting bullpen usage. You can do that just out of the box scores, see when guys are coming in and keep track of where they are on a kind of a grid. I, I do this, and one of the things I notice is there's teams that will fall into that seventh, eighth, nine, same guy every time in tight games. And there are teams where, like Tampa, where they're just going to do a lot more matching up. And if you, I think if you face one of, if you're looking at one of those Tampa type teams, as we've seen, you really can't predict who's going to get the saves because Tampa's doing it in a different way. They're not entrusting the entire save load to one guy. They're mixing and matching. I think they lead the, all of history in how many guys have had saves in a single year. Almost, almost. So I, I was looking at this the other day. Uh, I, the the league record is the is the uh, I think it was the seventy and seventy one Athletics. And then the Rangers, and maybe that was, I don't even think the save stat was an official stat. I think that was retro and they went back and looked at it, but they had like something like 12 different pitchers save a game in the same season. Tampa Bay has 11 already in this short season. They had 11 all of last year that have earned saves. They have 14 different pitchers that have earned wins this year out of their 23 wins. So it's like, who's ever available? And that's because, you know, again, they've had 12 different pitchers that are currently on the IL. Uh, I looked at it. I tweeted out a picture this morning to, to Doug Dennis as we were in a, a Twitter conversation. as like, here's the opening day pitching staff and what their status is. And almost the entire bullpen 
has been on the I is, is currently on the IL. Uh, it's just a crazy thing to figure, but they've been pulling up guys. And I made a comment like when I was talking to uh, Doug, it's just like, yeah, I've had to, I have to check the media notes every day just to see who's on the roster uh, and who's available. But Alvarado, Beeks, McKay, Poche, Chaz Rowe, Andrew Kittridge, Oliver Drake, Nick Anderson, all on the IL right now. And then Yanni Chirino's done for the year. Charlie Morton's uh, hopefully back this week. Uh, and, you know, that's those are the the hits that they're taking on it. But it's, yeah, it's it's crazy. Twelve of those guys uh, are currently on the IL, uh, but they've you know, they keep picking up guys and making do. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Ray are on the way next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In facts and flukes, analyst Brian Rudd does performance validations of five National Leaguers, including Paul Goldschmidt and Patrick Corbin. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Jock Thompson explores the trades in the American League West, while Ryan Bloomfield does the honors for the National League West. And in our fantastic daily call-ups reports, contributing writers Jeremy Deloney, Nick Richards, Matthew St. Germain, and Andy Smith look at recent call-ups, including Miami shortstop prospect Jazz Chisholm, Texas outfielder shortstop Eli White, Pittsburgh third baseman Cabrian Hayes, and all the other call-ups. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We do have that player performance validation in facts and flukes, news, updates, and playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and of course, groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, our daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. I didn't even mention the subscriber forums, a ton of wisdom there. Add it all up expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business baseball hq radio and welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick davitt time now for our market watch player news reports ray murphy is on deck with the american league news and leading off it's our national league report and our old friend harold nichols nick welcome back to baseball hq radio Thank you, Patrick. A lot of action in the trade front, especially in San Diego, where they look like they turned over three-quarters of the roster. I know they're not quite, but it sure seems that way. Uh, let's start with the big news they traded for right-hander Mike Clevenger from Cleveland. Also picked up uh, Greg Allen and a minor leaguer, sent a, a bunch of young players, Cal Quantrill, Joy Cantillo, guys like that, uh, one of their catchers as well, and Josh Naylor, which is something uh, interesting, but that's for the American League coverage. Uh, what's going to happen in San Diego now that Mike Clevenger's in the Staff. Well, Clevenger, Clevenger finally leaves behind the controversy he had caused in Cleveland by going out and uh, partying after the uh, games in Chicago and uh, immediately jumps to the front of the San Diego rotation. Uh, he has a 3.18 ERA with 21 strikeouts over 23 innings and a track record that includes a three-ish ERA and 45 wins over the previous three seasons um, and, and looks to be uh, at least from all the everything you would you would uh, read and hear, the the presumed ace of the San Diego staff, uh, his arrival bumps Andre and Morijan out of a starting job, uh, puts a damper on a possible return by uh, Joey Lucchese, 
and makes it a lot more likely that prospect uh, Mackenzie Gore will uh, make it unlikely that Mackenzie Gore is going to pitch any meaningful innings this season. So uh, a lot of a lot of fallout from the uh, the Clevenger arrival. Uh, the question is, I guess, is he as good as as he's supposed to be? He made his first start for the uh, for the Padres on Thursday night, facing the Angels in San Diego. He had made four starts for the Indians before the trade. Uh, only the first of those with a PQS DOM, uh, a 4.76 XERA and 47 BPV, uh, show that his skills this season have not been as strong as uh, his reputation. Uh, a 12.1 DOM last year, a 4.6 command. Those have dropped this season to 8.3 DOM and a 1.9 command. And the first start was just so-so. Uh, allowed two earned runs and seven hits in six innings. Uh, struck out two and walked one. So uh, he's off to a start. He took a loss last night uh, on Thursday night. And um, we'll see where it goes from here. But uh, I, I hope, uh, hope for the Padres' sake they got what they thought they were getting. I wonder if he is going to be the ace of that rotation, considering how well Denelson Lamette has been pitching. But it certainly gives them a, a formidable top three, which is really important as we go into playoff mode. Uh, Chris Paddock being the third guy, and Zach Davies hasn't been too bad for uh, San Diego either. Uh, I wonder if the worry here, from from the point of view of Mike Clevenger, is uh, you mentioned uh, 8.3 strikeouts per nine for a dom rate, which is down pretty significantly, and a 1.9 strikeout per walk command ratio, and really in this day and age, anything below two is really suspect as far as baseball HQ analysts are concerned. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that command ratio is is not something we want to see, uh, especially from a uh, uh, from what we what we want to consider a top flight starting pitcher. So, uh, I, I find it troublesome. And last night, uh, two strikeouts, one walk, and six innings—not uh, what you would hope for. Meanwhile, we should give passing mention to Greg Allen, uh, the outfielder that was traded across from Cleveland as part of the deal. Certainly a minor part. Do we expect any fantasy impact in San Diego from Greg Allen? Uh, he will get, he'll be on the bench, get minimal at-bats, I think, off the bench. Uh, at this point, probably not uh, real. I, not someone I'd be jumping on on, on FAB at this point, uh, moving to the National League. I think that's uh, I think that's correct. They have other outfield options certainly, and uh, we're going to be talking about one of those in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, San Diego very busy as I mentioned. Also acquired Kansas City closer uh, Trevor Rosenthal. He's a right-hander, and San Diego gave back a pretty interesting chip. They uh, traded away Edward Olivares, who had just joined the roster recently this year and had a pretty high upside. Uh, what's the baseball HQ's look at this from Jock Thompson? Well, Rosenthal had notched seven saves, uh, 21 uh, uh, strikeouts to seven walks over 14 innings before moving to San Diego. Um, we expect him to take over most of the ninth inning work in San Diego. Uh, so his, his really projections have not changed a whole lot from, from where we had him in Kansas City. Uh, projected, I think, for four or five saves the rest of the way. Uh, might be in a job share with Drew Pomerantz, uh, who just come off the IL the same day the trade was announced. So there is a secondary, uh, perhaps closer, uh, still in the house in San Diego. Um, uh, the, the departure of Oliveras opens up so, uh, some outfielded bats off the bench, uh, but really not a great effect in, in that regard on the San Diego uh, side of things. 
Yeah, I'm interested in the idea that there could be a job share with Drew Pomerantz, uh, who came off the aisle, as you mentioned. Uh, and Nick, there's also Taylor Williams is in the mix now. Uh, they, uh, San Diego acquired him from Seattle. He's the closer up there. He was six for seven in save opportunities and a pretty high strikeout guy. Could this be some kind of three-way job share that pretty much destroys the value of all of the guys involved? Well, it's a possibility. I mean, you've got three guys in that situation, all of whom could close. My guess is you're certainly not going to see one of them pitching on consecutive nights uh, because they certainly don't need to do that, so they don't need to take that kind of risk. Uh, so uh, they're going to get more rest, which may make them more effective when they're in there. But the question is, uh, how often is each one going to get a save chance with that many good potential closers now on the, in the house? San Diego staying busy, acquired catcher Austin Nola, uh, reliever Dan Altavia, and uh, reliever Austin Adams from Seattle again in a different trade, oddly enough. It uh, wasn't all at once. They got back some top prospects, including Taylor Trammell, Luis Torrens, and Ty France, as well as a right-hander, Andres Munoz, that I know some people like. So really big deal. Uh, what's going on here with Austin Nola joining San Diego? And they traded away both their previous catchers in the process. Well, they weren't getting. They really were not getting much out of their catcher position offensively. Uh, so they really, really did upgrade that slot in their in their roster. Uh, Austin uh, Nola, of course, the big mover in terms of playing time. He ends a catching job share with the newly acquired Jason Castro. Um, we don't know yet how those at bats will be split up, but Austin uh, Nola is the better offensive player of the two. Uh, he has zero left-right splits, uh, so we'll give him a slight edge at least until we see how things settle down. Uh, the other good thing about Nola, as far as f- fantasy goes, he's a, has value as a utility player, uh, So, and they will probably use that because he's a fairly decent bat. So uh, we expect to see him in the Padres lineup actually on a, almost on a nightly basis, uh, playing either catcher or some other position. That's the interesting part of this, isn't it? Because Castro, they also acquired, he's a left-handed hitter with a pretty pronounced uh, split towards uh, being able to batter the right-handed pitching, but that doesn't immediately disqualify Nola from all the nights that right-handed pitchers are out there because, as you said, he hits both right and left uh, pretty equally. So that's a really interesting development in San Diego, and boy, they stayed uh, super busy. Uh, meanwhile, in Colorado, they acquired a new outfielder. Uh, Kevin Pillar moves over from Boston. Um, what's the story there with Kevin Pillar in uh, Mile High Stadium? Well, Kevin Pillar really is a very interesting kind of uh, kind of player to put into into Mile High Stadium. Uh, he posted a two seventy four, three twenty five, four seventy line through one hundred seventeen at bats at Boston, and really takes over center field in in Coors. Uh, a, a great, a strong defensive upgrade over Garrett Hampson. Uh, who had taken over the role in the wake of David Dahl's uh, injury. Uh, Dahl's expected back shortly, but will likely spend most of his time uh, at left field in DH. So uh, the combination of both Dahl's return and Pilar's arrival uh, will likely cut the at-bats for both uh, Garrett Hampson, who was batting uh, 247 batting average through 93 at-bats, and Matt Kemp, who had a 250 batting average, three home runs through 72 at-bats, and also Sam Hilliard. Uh, 234 batting average through 64 at bats. So all three uh, of those expected to lose some playing time. Uh, Hampson about 25% of the playing time. Hillian and Kemp about 15% each. Uh, Pilar looks like a really interesting guy, I think, in Coors Field especially. 
It remains to be seen how much they're going to run. Kevin Pillar is a kind of a sneaky value guy. I was talking about Kevin Pillar with somebody else a couple of days ago after this trade took place. And boy, you know, his, his track record the last few years has been consistent double-digit fantasy value across the board contributor. He'll hit some home runs. He'll steal some bases. And uh, I think as a crossover candidate for guys who are in National League-only leagues looking at those crossovers, it could be really interesting to take a long look at Kevin Pillar and don't stint that fab bidding because this guy could really help you down the stretch, I think. Uh, Moving on, Nick, uh, Arizona traded right-handed closer Archie Bradley to Cincinnati for uh, infielder Josh Van Meter and uh, outfielder named Stuart Fairchild. What's the deal with Archie Bradley in Cincinnati considering they already have Razel Iglesias? Well, you know, it's uh, probably Bradley becomes a uh, a setup guy or a secondary uh, behind behind Razel Iglesias at this point. We were not projecting a lot of save gain for Bradley uh, moving over to to Cincinnati. Actually, a loss in save for Bradley probably in that situation. But just as San Diego, it now gives them a situation where they've got two very strong closer candidates they can run out there. So probably you're not going to see either one of them pitching on back-to-back nights. Uh, the real question, of course, is what happens in now in Arizona in terms of save with Bradley gone. Um, they've got uh, the bulk of the saves right now were given to Kevin Ginkle and to Hector Rondon. Uh, Ginkle had a very solid 2019 rookie season, but he struggled a lot this season. Uh, 6.26 XCRA and 9 BPV. Uh, Rondon also has struggled a 5.75 XCRA, BPV of minus 7. So there's not a real slam dunk candidate in the Arizona bullpen at the moment. Uh, I wouldn't be jumping on either one of them, expecting them to uh, to hold things down uh, uh, for the rest of the season. I think Arizona's going to have late inning woes from here on out with Bradley gone. And I think Razel Iglesias might have had his lease shortened a bit in Cincinnati with this deal. Nick, uh, 450 ERA, although a 117 whip, but a low 62% strand rate, but he seems to be giving up hits at the worst possible time. And uh, Cincinnati has, you know, sort of dwindling playoff aspirations, but they can't afford to throw away uh, late leads. And I think Raziel Iglesias is uh, standing right with his toes hanging over the edge of the dock. And, uh, you know, one more bad uh, performance as a closer, and I think somebody's going to give him a shove. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, uh, at this point, uh, he, he was kind of what they had before, and now as you said, they've got uh, they've got someone they can replace him with. So uh, certainly he's going to need to step up uh, immediately if he's going to hang on to his closer job. And given all the news we've been hearing, or the analysis, I guess we've been hearing out of Tampa Bay, that maybe what they're doing there with their closer situation is never pitching a guy without sufficient rest, which would mean if that's something that people are taking to heart across baseball, that maybe Razel Iglesias maintains his primary closer role but doesn't get to to get into safe situations on back-to-back nights should Cincinnati have a lead on back-to-back nights. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, maybe uh, you're right. Maybe people are looking at the way Tampa Bay has dealt with things this season. And uh, when you've got two guys uh, that are both capable of closing, uh, Iglesias might actually get better if he's able to get more rest between, uh, between appearances. In Los Angeles, the very powerful Dodgers traded away right-hander Ross Stripling for a couple of minor leaguers. This looks like uh, simply a way for them to clear some path for a couple of other pitchers they just like better. Well, that, that's true. And as Stripling, of course, was really struggling, a 5.61 ERA through 34 innings. Uh, I had him on a fantasy team and pulled him out of my out of my uh, rotation very quickly with that kind of performance. Uh, so they've got a couple of guys now that, that really could uh, 
step in and, and do uh, perhaps probably fairly a lot better than Stripling was doing. Tony Gonsolin uh, has allowed only one earned run through 18 innings pitched. Uh, rehabbing Alex Wood is coming back. Uh, he had thrown just three innings pitched all season, but reportedly close to returning from a strained shoulder. Uh, both of them uh, seek, uh, will probably inherit those innings. And also, uh, L.A. has a very deep bullpen, uh, so that, uh, you know, there, there are always a possibility if either guys go to get in trouble uh, of pulling one of them very quickly. So uh, I think really both Wood and Gonsolin are uh, rosterable. They're still available in your, in your fantasy fab. I think so, too, and Jock Thompson actually says they're both roster-worthy in almost every fantasy format, so this is not a case where, you know, in a National League-only league where you have very few options. In a mixed league, you have lots of options, but there's a lot to recommend, Gonsolin especially, I think, with that uh, extraordinary ERA so far this year, and of course, it always helps that you're playing for a good team, because we can't chase wins, we all know that, but if... if uh, you know, they're banging out six runs for you, and then the bullpen shuts everything down at the end. That's a lot better than if they don't, <laughs> you know, as simple as that. So I think this is a good situation, especially for Tony Gonsolin, as you said, if he's still available. And finally, in this space, Nick, we like to talk about some of the other columns that are going on at BaseballHQ.com. And we often mention Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column. He has one this week called Mayberry Doppelgangers. Sounds like the worst soccer team in the world, but this is interesting. He uses the Mayberry Method valuations to compare Trent Grisham, get this, to Ronald Acuna. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I really like this column uh, that, uh, uh, that, that Ryan does on an annual basis, uh, looking at guys that are kind of under the radar, but whose skill set may make them uh, equivalent to uh, guys with a lot more, uh, a lot more reputation. So uh, Trent Grisham has been... Uh, popping along as a comp and, and looking at him as a comp to Ronald Acuna certainly gets our attention. Uh, he's San Diego's full-time center fielder uh, and been much more that we wrote about him as a flyer-worthy outfielder in this year's forecaster. Uh, at this point, Trent Grisham is one of only six hitters with eight home runs and four stolen bases. The other people are Mookie Betts, Trevor Story, Fernando Tatis, uh, uh, Teoscar Hernandez, Louis Robar. So, uh, you know, he's I mean, pretty good company. Uh, still some work to do making contact, only a 69% contact rate, uh, but a lot of support in terms of underlying power and speed and a very solid walk rate and 23 years old. So, uh, you know, if Trent Grisham is available in your league, uh, especially if it's a keeper, you got to look at him at this point, and he may still be flying under the radar and could actually be a, uh, a threat for quite a while. Yeah, I think the uh, takeaway from this, uh, I'm sure Trent Grisham is, is rostered everywhere at this point, just based on the performances here with those eight home runs and the bags, and he's a $22 player by Baseball HQ Valuations, and uh, if you're in a league where a $22 player is still in the free agent pool, really you need to get into a better league. But uh, assuming that he's available maybe as a trade piece, I think this is where it's interesting that uh, it's possible that Trent Grisham owners might be looking at him and saying, I can't believe my good luck, you know, and, and it's bound to run out. And they might be interested in maybe including him in a deal for a more established player. And as Ryan points out, on a skills basis, Trent Grisham could very well be another Ronald Acuna, and it could be that his current owners might not be aware of that. Yeah, I think very definitely. And, I, you know, that's, that was one of the, I, th I thought the most interesting things about this column is being able to look at uh, guys who, uh, who, as you said, might be available as a trade piece uh, because the owners haven't quite bought in yet to uh, to what they're producing. So, uh, and there were, it's a good column. Take a look at it. There were others involved. Uh, 
and I actually was able to pick up at least one of them in a trade uh, this week and uh, was offered one of the others. Wow, that's really good. Who'd you get? I, I got Tim Anderson. Um, I was really pleased to be able to pick him up at this point in the American League uh, and uh, was pleased with that. It got offered Kyle Tucker. Uh, but I, it was in a league where I had some very, uh, he wanted some very good prospects back. And I thought, well, this team's not going anywhere in this keeper league this year. So I'll just, I'll just pass. And both Tim Anderson and Kyle Tucker, Nick, even though they're American leaguers and we shouldn't be really be talking about them in Ryan's speculator column, he compared both of those guys favorably in the same way to Mookie Betts, which is uh, again, pretty high praise for guys who might not be considered in that same sort of tier of fantasy uh, assets. Mookie Betts, everybody knows, is a superstar, but Tim Anderson and Kyle Tucker have the stuff of superstardom. Very definitely. All right, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, busy trade week. We could have gone on and on and on, and uh, maybe next week we'll have a chance to catch up on some more regular player news as we head down the stretch. Talk to you next week. All right. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Busy trade deadline, Patrick. we got a lot to talk about. Do we ever? And I was going to say to you that uh, in past years, of course, we do this every year at trade deadline, and there's usually not so much to talk about. But boy, this year was a, a genuine feeding frenzy out there. It was. It was uh, like a taste of... Uh what used to be normalcy in the, uh, you, you know, in this alternate reality we're living in. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it is predicated on the fact that so many teams figure that they're in with a shot to make the playoffs. And once you're in the playoffs, it's a crap shoot. Really anybody can win if they get, you know, some hot pitching at the right time. And even if you're the eighth seed, there's a pathway to, to succeeding in this, especially with the short series and stuff. So, uh, not surprising that we had a lot of activity. A lot of it took place in the American league. Let's start North of the border, or as I like to call it, this side of the border, uh, Toronto was active around the deadline, picking up uh, three starting pitchers. They got Taiwan Walker from Seattle, Robbie Ray from Arizona, Ross Stripling from the Dodgers. The Jays were clearly willing to bargain bin their effort to shore up their rotation, but how interested should fantasy owners be in these guys? Yeah, the, I think bargain bin is a good description of it, but I think that's understandable because the current state of their rotation was such a shambles that even the bargain bin represented a nice upgrade. I mean, they were down to Ryu and Tanner Rourke and Chase Anderson and I think you and me in their rotation before these trades. So, you know, they clearly needed the reinforcements. Well, me more than you, because I don't have to worry about the whole work visa thing, but, uh, well, I guess I, I guess <laughs> I would, right? Because uh, the Toronto games aren't taking place in Toronto this year. So uh, maybe let's go through them quickly one at a time. Of the three, Ray, I have to say, I like Taiwan Walker, the best of the three acquisitions as a fantasy asset. Yeah. He, he, we, we just missed uh, by a couple hours talking about him last week, I think. And, so he's already made his debut for the Jays and had a good start. Uh, what he throw six shutout innings against the Orioles the other night. Uh, I mean, all the small sam sample caveats have to apply here because in this season, all we're talking about is small samples. But he's been quite good. If you remember, his Tommy John surgery was, I believe it was late in 2018. And then he missed all of 2019 and came back. Actually, I think it was early 2018, but he missed most of 2018, most of 2019. Uh, came back for a, a token start with, uh, I believe it was the Mariners at the end of last season, just to prove he was still healthy. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was still the D-backs. But then he signed with the Mariners this season, and he popped off, I mean, five good starts, and that's all it took to make him a fairly highly desirable trade commodity in this silly season. So, uh, 
you know, six shutout innings. His uh, his metrics look pretty good through thirty three innings. He's got eleven walks, twenty nine strikeouts, uh, BPV of seventy six, which is around league average. But for a starting pitcher, it's probably much better than that. If we broke it down by starters and relievers, uh, his xERA is four and a half. So, I mean, this is not a budding rotation ace, but like I said, better than what the Blue Jays were running out there on the fourth and fifth day. Yeah, that's for sure. Maybe a little bit of caution here. A 40% fly ball rate in that little relatively small stadium in, Bu- in Buffalo could be a problem for the Jays, but it do- does definitely look like an upgrade for them, especially at the back end of the rotation. Now, now Robbie Ray, I noticed that his first outing was not a start. They brought him in in the third inning as a kind of a bulk guy. He got all the way into the seventh, pitched three and a third, uh, four strikeouts, and get this, newsflash, only one walk. Yeah, and that given what had been going on in Arizona this year before the trade, that is very big news. He had, he had, he was walking like a guy in inning in Arizona. It was like 27 innings, 27 walks or something like that. It was, uh, yeah. So one walk in four innings is certainly an improvement. Uh, I haven't had a chance to go back and look at, uh, as you said, they brought him in as, as a uh, sort of a bulk guy. And, you know, he only threw 48 pitches. I, I haven't gotten back and, had a chance to look at his pitch mix yet and see if they did anything different or had him shelve something or if they spotted something mechanical and that's why they traded for him. You always wonder how those things work out. Did they trade for him because they had the answer that the Diamondbacks hadn't found in their own film or was it just that they needed the arm and they you know see the see the past history and figure maybe they'll fig- they'll figure something out when he gets there. But uh, I mean, one walk in three to third innings is better than for, for a direct reference in his last start before as a diamondback at home against the Rockies, he walked six and struck out eight in four innings. So, uh, yeah, this is better. And I wondered, uh, not only about a pitch mix, but as you said, there's a possibility that if you're going to get out there in shorter, uh, outings, that maybe the Jays figure he can just drop his least effective pitch, and we'd have to be interested in that. But also, I wonder if they're if the Jays are aware of some kind of third time through penalty that Ray was being unusually affected by, and that'll be something to look at as well. Do you think that they're just maybe onto an adjusted role for Ray? Ray, I you know his stuff has always been there, so he is certainly it is certainly interesting to think about him as a uh, in this role as a bulk man in, or you know what the you know kind of what the Rays have been doing with with. Uh, for a while with Yarborough and Chirinos and those guys, um, the stuff certainly plays. And yeah, if he can, uh, you know, shelve whatever pitch it is that, you know, uh, that, that is least effective. And as a result of basically just being a two pitch pitcher, but be out there for, you know, two times through the lineup, 18 batters, maybe something like we saw here, three and a third, four innings. I, you know, th- that's very effective, especially in this era of, expanded pitching staffs. And I think I just read it this week that um, the playoff rosters are going to be 28. Is that right? So, uh, you know, there'll be plenty of arms on the Jays staff to, uh, to allow Ray to play that role into the postseason. And let's touch on Ross Stripling as well. Kind of a guy who always struggled to find a role in, in Los Angeles because they had so many other options out there. And uh, oddly enough, from 16 through 19, Ray, pretty good ERAs, excellent ground ball rates. And then this year he had seven starts. His ERA shot up, his ex-ERA shot up, and his ground ball rate really fell. He was usually around 50% this year, closer to 30. And I wonder if that's why the Dodgers soured on him and maybe the Jays think they can get that ground ball rate back up because uh, that's what they needed, as I mentioned before in that relatively small ballpark. 
Yeah, I always thought of him with the Dodgers as sort of default starter. They have all they had all over the last several years all these guys they needed to handle carefully between Maeda and Rich Hill and Kershaw, and yeah, you know, they were managing Bueller's innings more at the time last year. And Urias was coming back from injury. There were all these you know delicate sports performance car type types of things. And if they were all in the shop, they threw stripling out there for the day. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Like that, like that old Volkswagen you got behind the garage in case all your totally, Bentleys. And, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but, but to your point, compared to, you know, if you look at his Dodger track record, you know, he was very successful. He had four year, four straight years of an ERA under a four. Which he, you know, it's not fair to call him an old jalopy. But uh, yeah, things have uh, to extend the metaphor. The wheels have come off this year, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, also, some hope that uh, Jays have, at least according to their broadcast crew, when you watch the games, they think they still might get Nate Pearson back. Maybe also uh, Matt Shoemaker. How could that affect the calculus uh, as far as fantasy value goes? You know, Pearson was. Uh, Getting hit around, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was, oh, geez, another one with uh, 12, as I pull up his with his page here, 12 walks, 14 strikeouts, and 16 innings. That's uh, positively Robbie Ray-esque. Uh, Shoemaker's been uh, a little bit hit and miss, too, but I do wonder, you know, Shoemaker tends to be a guy who has a tendency to run out of gas early, and Pearson might be another guy who airs it out and... Uh, or would be more effective airing it out for a few innings at a time. I wonder now that they have the depth here, if there's some concept of piggybacking three inning starters or doing more of a opener or bulk thing. Uh, you know, let, let's not sleep on their bullpen either, which was very good, but has now had some holes blown in it. With uh, you know, obviously Giles has been out for most of the season, and you know Jordan Romano just went down, but Giles at least might be back. So they they have you know, a credible back into the bullpen. If they could pull, maybe they pull one of those guys forward to be an opener in front of these three, four inning bulk guys. I think that's a real distinct possibility. And while it might do well for the Jays, unfortunately it tends to really crush some value as a fantasy asset goes, because especially if they're mixing and maxing, mixing and matching the closers, that kind of thing. Uh, Toronto also acquired one offensive weapon, stolen base threat. Jonathan VR comes over from Miami. How does he figure to produce as a fantasy asset on this Jays team? Yeah, it'll be interesting because he's very short term. It seems like he gets plugged in for Bo Bichette, and that should give him a little opportunity to continue to uh, produce and to run in particular. I mean, he running is what this guy has always done, right? In uh, just 124 at-bats this year, he's got not only nine stolen bases, but five caught stealings. So that's, uh, that's a pretty green light. Uh, I, I would wonder whether that light would stay as green in Toronto and then you know, given he's not super productive at the plate, uh, you know, 311 OBP, 650 OPS this year, neither of which are all that far removed from his career levels. Uh, I wonder whether he plays regularly when uh, when Bichette comes back, which sounds like it'll be, you know, sometime within the next couple of weeks, I think. So it might be a short window for, for VR here to, uh, to hang up some more bags for his owners before he slides into a bench slash utility slash pinch running roll down the uh, down the last week or two of the season here. Well, for those who are interested, Toronto is slightly above average as a team as far as stolen base attempts goes, uh, not sort of anywhere near the 
the uh, level of stolen base activity that went on in Miami, but they're slightly above average in that regard. The media here, when they talk about VR uh, during the games and in the in the newspapers, people who still read newspapers, is that uh, they expect that once VR uh, loses his role to Bo Bichette's return, there's a pretty strong possibility he moves over to second, maybe plays some third, maybe even gets some uh, some reps in the outfield. So I think having acquired him, they're going to take a long look at Jonathan VR and figuring out ways to get him into the lineup. And batting second was the story I heard when Bichette comes back. He was hitting second, but he'll bounce down to third, which is a slight change in plate appearances, probably relatively insignificant. But if they're talking about keeping VR in the lineup and having him hit second, it's kind of a bump for his playing time because uh, that's not maybe what we would have expected on the face of it. Yeah, that, not only that, but uh, second in this Toronto lineup is better than second in the Miami lineup. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, the Texas Rangers, Ray, were big sellers at the deadline. Uh, let's start on offense. They traded away Todd Frazier. They traded away catcher Robinson Chirinos. Who's going to get the plate appearances in Texas? whole bunch of people, it looks like. Uh, they're, you know, one of the things we talked about last week was perhaps the end of the era for Shinsu Chu, but I think he backs into getting back into the lineup here by attrition of so many others. Uh, with Torino, Torino's back behind God from behind the plate, uh, Jose Trevino, who we talked about uh, while Chirinos was hurt, sort of gets thrust back into the primary backstop role. And then, you know, they've created even some more playing time freed up here with Todd Frazier leaving. So Kiner Falifa probably is the, you know, inked in at third base now. First base remains open. That could be Derek Dietrich, Ron Guzman. Uh, they called up a... Um, prospect by the name of Eli White, who all who looks like uh, sort of just a guy from our prospect rating systems. We've got him rated as a 7C, but uh, which is an average regular with uh, half a chance of achieving that ceiling. But there's a lot of, uh, there, there, there are a lot of at-bats here, so he may get a uh, chance to prove that he's better than what we tagged him as. Jock Thompson covers the American League West for playing time tomorrow, and he said the club's deals really brought them nothing in the way of near-term help for an offense that's second from the bottom, I think he said, in scoring. And he says we should be thinking of watching out for Nick Solak at second, taking Rugnet Odor's plate appearances. Odor's on the IL right now. Yes, uh, you know, Solak sort of has been moving around a lot, but this might be a chance for him to uh, to, to ink himself into a, uh, in, into a primary position going forward here, because Odor has had an awful lot of chances, injury aside, and continues to acquit himself as a uh, you know two hundred hitter with the occasional home run and a boatload of strikeouts, and uh, that might have been tolerable when you could just plug him in the bottom of what was at one time a pretty good Texas lineup, but now that it no longer is, the uh, the welcome for Odor maybe wearing out there. Uh, I imagine so, and uh, putting him on the IL might be the nail in the coffin, so to speak. Uh, Nick Solak's been pretty good this year. $15 value by Baseball HQ. We're projecting him to stay in double digits for the balance of the year. So if Nick Solak's in your free agent pool, maybe you might want to look at him. Uh, the Rangers also dealt uh, starting pitcher Mike Miner. Who gets his innings in Texas? Yeah, the, <laughs> you want to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, uh, there, there's, there's going to be probably tryouts, I, I would imagine. Uh, we talked uh, a week or two ago about Kyle Cody, and I think he sort of has the inside track on the fifth starter job now, uh, and that's after Colby Allard, who has been getting absolutely tattooed, uh, gets penciled into the fourth spot. So Allard and Cody for now with uh, John King and maybe, you know, maybe an opener like a Jesse Chavez 
lurking. It's uh, nobody who I really want to endorse. All right. Uh, Seattle was extremely active. No surprise there. Jerry DePoto, uh, always busy at trading deadlines and off seasons and any chance he gets. Uh, one surprise, though, for me, Ray, was that they sold off basically their entire bullpen all at once, including a relatively effective closer, Taylor Williams. They'd been looking for a closer for quite a while. They finally got one. And of course, immediately Jerry DePoto trades him. And why not, right? Closers are made, not born, is what uh, he seems to think. And I think he's right. Uh, not there's going to be a ton of save opportunities in Seattle, but who's going to get the ball in the ninth for the Mariners? So I, I ended up drafting a bunch of people in the Mariners bullpen, both in March and in July, trying to speculate on who the closer was going to be. And nowhere did I have any Taylor Williams. Yeah, <laughs> um, but he, he sort of emerged from the back of the bullpen. He was not very good last year. Uh, you know, had in, in particular in a small sample size, he had you know. Stop me if you've heard this before. A lot of control problems, but he's a big guy and throws hard. I think his fastball was topping out at 97 and sort of, you know, with a vacancy in the job at the start of the year with Hirano on the DL and McGill was, sort of was being used in a higher leverage role earlier in the game. The ninth inning was available and Williams sort of that, sort of took that ball and ran with it and DePoto, like you say, cashed him in. So now McGill's still on the team, but he's on the DL and I believe officially out for the year. Uh, Hirano just got activated in the last 10 days or so and had already stepped in as far as uh, getting a, at least one or two opportunities in the eighth and in uh, save situations in front of in front of Williams. So I fully expect the next save op for the the um, Mariners to go to Hirano. And he's credible. There's a big hole in this bullpen now. I don't know who's going to work in front of him. But, you know, his track record at, with uh, two years in Arizona – uh, he was very good in 2018 with a uh, 244 ERA. Uh, worse last year uh, when the ERA jumped to 475, but his BPV was still good at 108. So there, there are some skills here and uh, lacking uh, credible alternatives. I would imagine he's going to pop off, uh, you know, you would think at least four or five saves in September. Assuming Seattle can get four or five wins. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Aye, there. there's the rub. <laughs> uh, Rod Trusdell covered the activity for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. He also mentioned uh, Johan Ramirez, but also uh, put in a word for a fan favorite by the name of L.J. Newsom. L-J-A-Y, the guy's first name is. Uh, what do we know about him? Yeah, there's a, uh, we know how to spell his name now, so thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, he's been a, uh, he's been working in the bullpen so far, and it's one of those things where it's a uh, you know performance uh, catching your eye. He actually got a start as well. Uh, you know, first outing was a three inning relief appearance where he only allowed one run, and he got a start against the Padres. And we know how the Padres have been pounding people, but he managed to last sixty innings, four innings, one run, no walk, four strikeouts, and no you know a, a no decision there. Of course, only going four innings, but you know to not get blown up by. The Padres was encouraging. There's, you know, as far as role and prospect pedigree, we had him pegged as a long reliever, possible spot starter, which fits how he's been used so far, uh, with a, a rating of a six C, which is more of a back of the roster kind of guy. But uh, we will watch and see whether he can he can use his low ninety fastball, but a pretty good slider and a changeup. All of which, you know, it's one of he's one of these command profiles where the he doesn't light up the radar gun, but. Uh, you know, mixes and spots his stuff effectively. So if he can carry that over to the majors, maybe he's a little bit better than what the, what we tagged him at from the uh, scouting point of view. 
As you mentioned, we only have a couple of major league games to go by. Seems to be a, a bit low on the swinging strike side, around five or six percent, and uh, uh, five or six swinging strikes, I should say. And first pitch strikes, same thing, not that great. But uh, in the short sample, uh, who the heck knows? Uh, Let's go to Boston, uh, your home turf. The Red Sox, uh, of course, throwing their towel in for the season, traded Mitch Moreland, who's on a hot streak, to San Diego. Who gets the first base playing time in Boston? Yeah, so they, Moreland, as you say, was hot, and the Sox cashed him in, which is, uh, you know, what, what you do when you're in last place. Uh, so that's been super enjoyable up here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the, uh, the, the playtime winner for September is probably Bobby Dahlbeck who got called up and actually had a home run in his first game on, I guess it was Sunday, uh, you know, big power prospect, you know, one of these bulking guys and, you know, they're probably going to take a pretty good look at him over the course of September. The interesting thing for the long term is they're not doing this now. They're putting Dahlbeck at first base for the moment, but. If he acquits himself with the bat and they decide the bat can play, then next year you would imagine he'll go to third base and Raphael Devers will move over to first because Dahlbeck is a third baseman by trade and a much better defender over at the hot corner than Devers. So we would imagine we'd see a flip. The, uh, they're just not doing that now because A, it doesn't matter, and B, they don't want Devers having to learn a new position on the fly. So they'll wait and do that with Devers in a, uh, in a full spring training. But all of that is predicated on Dahlbeck looking uh, competent at the plate. Uh, last year in Pawtucket, he hit uh, 257 with uh, seven home runs and just 113 at-bats, uh, which was a follow-on to a double-A campaign where you know, he was only hitting them in the 230s, but did hit 20 home runs in you know the other the rest of the season, the other 350 at bats. So that's a net of you know 27 home runs in a full season in double triple A. So it's a stop me if you've heard this one before. It's another you know mediocre BA strong power profile that we have all over the game today. Jeremy Deloney covered uh, Bobby Dahlbeck in the daily call-ups reports that we issue anytime a player gets called up. And one of the other things he mentioned was, despite his body type, is a pretty solid fielder and he has a tremendous arm. So there could be some future playing time there as well, and maybe even this year. And one other thing that jumped out at me, Ray, and maybe you know more about this, when he was playing in double A, in addition to hitting 20 home runs, six bags. Yeah, he really is. You know, one of these, you know, I was actually very surprised. You know, I sort of got my eyes on him for the first time in that first game on Sunday when he homered. And, you know, I, my reaction was as, exactly what you're describing here. I looked at him, I'm like, really? Good defensive third baseman? And and stolen bases out of this body type? Amazing. But, you know, I guess, you know, I guess with, with the body type, I guess the bigger concern is probably how he ages and, you know, what, what does it look like when, you know, he's pushing 30, but now when he's, you know, young and nibble, surprisingly nimble despite his frame. This is what he can get out of his skill set. So, uh, you know, we'll see We'll see how that progresses through the course of his career. But for now, yeah, a couple of random stolen bases would be uh, would be most welcome. And maybe eventually moves back over to first when he can't, uh, you know, dance around the hot corner as well as he does. Uh, I should say Jeremy Deloney and the Baseball HQ scouting team giving uh, – Bobby Dahlbeck, an 8C rating, which is uh, full-time regular with a 50% chance of, of getting there. Bobby Dahlbeck, I think, is a guy you might want to look at this weekend for your uh, fab if he's available in your league. Uh, what about Michael Chavis in the meantime? Last year's uh, darling, not so much. Yeah, I think they're going to 
there's no reason not to continue giving him at bats too. And he'll probably mix in at first base at second base at DH uh, and, you know, third base. I mean, he's, he's, he's more versatile in that sense. And it probably makes more sense to be giving him at bats than say Jose Peraza. But, you know, Chavez, you know, is really in the opportunities he's had, he really hasn't shown any progress. And I think the, uh, the bloom is sort of off this rose until, they can, you know, if there were if there was actively a minor league season going on, I think he'd probably be down there. Uh, he, I mean, this year in seventy six at bats, he's you know struck out forty five percent of the time, which you know only plays if you're Joey Gallo. And Chavez has some power, but he is not Joey Gallo. So uh, you know, until he can get some control over that uh, that that the giant holes in his swing, I really don't think there's uh, much room for optimism here. Like I said, I would imagine that. Uh, you know, unless he shows up with a completely new approach next spring, he will probably get a, you know, a decent stretch in AAA once AAA reopens to uh, to try to work that out a little bit because you know, work trying to work it out at the big league level just pretty obviously is not working. Finally, Ray, as usual, a lot of prospects moved at the deadline. But what is a bit odd is that uh, the top seven prospects by Baseball HQ's rankings all moved into the American League. Our scouting team was out quickly with an analysis. They called the piece ranking the traded prospects. So how did they rank? Yeah, this was fascinating to me that the... uh you know the, the the minor league talent was all flowing into the American League. I think the the pattern we've seen in recent years has been the the iron of the American League: the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Astros, people like that. Uh, Bob being the primary buyers at the trade deadline, then the prospect flow going to the NL side. But it was totally reversed this year. The the top seven guys, as you say, were all on, on this list. All our new arrivals in the AL from the NL. So if you are mining the uh, you know, the fab wires for longer term pieces. Uh, there's a lot to work with on the AL side. Uh, the top of the list was Taylor Trammell, who went from uh, San Diego to Seattle, uh, who's a uh, you know 22 year old slugging outfielder. He went from, if I'm not mistaken, he went from Cincinnati to San Diego last year and has now moved on to Seattle here. So he's been passed around a couple of times. But after that, you start to get into some of the guys that uh, San Diego got in the Cle- uh, San Diego sent to Cleveland in the Clevenger t- deal. The second guy in the list was. Uh, Excuse me, Joey Cantillo, a a left-handed pitcher who's only down in high A with the with the Indians, and Gabriel Arias is a shortstop. The Indians got two in that deal. He was number four on the list, so it goes on. And Edward Olivares, who briefly played the majors in San Diego, an outfielder this year, he went from San Diego to Kansas City for Trevor Rosenthal. He was number three on this list, and then. Jason Rosario is number five. He's come to Boston from Moreland. Uh, the Orioles got a second baseman by the name of Taryn Vavra from Colorado for Michael Givens, which anytime you can get something from Michael Givens seems like a win, let alone the sixth best prospect traded, traded last week. And then uh, Tyler Nevin, uh, number seven, also went to uh, Ori- the, uh, the Orioles in that same deal. So they, they did pretty well for, for Michael Givens there. And cautionary note, most of these guys are high A, single A, that kind of thing. So they're not going to be a lot of help, but we wouldn't expect this year. I guess there's uh, some possibility that Kansas City might get a, give Olivares a look. Uh, I don't know about Taylor Trammell because uh, I don't know how the service time things play out and that kind of stuff. But uh, some interesting prospects for sure. And uh, do you see any of these guys having fantasy value this season? 
I think probably not. Oliveras, as you say, is probably as good a guess as any. Uh, Trammell is the other one who's you know close to being ready. Uh, it's going to be interesting, you know, even longer term to see how the Mariners sort out what is becoming a glut of prospects, especially in the outfield. You know, Kyle Lewis is acquitting himself very well and is a, and is very much you know, worked his way into their long-term plans. But they've got uh, both Jared Kalenic and Julio Rodriguez, who probably aren't that far away. No, so, so now Trammell's a fourth guy for the outfield, and obviously there are ways you can work that out. But uh, that'll, that'll be one thing that sort of caught my eye is, ooh, another Seattle outfielder. But no, I don't expect to see uh, Trammell in Seattle this month. All right, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. A lot of news to talk about this week. Uh, When we get back, it'll be a little more calm next week as we really start thinking about heading into the stretch. Yeah, we'll be deep into September by next week. All right, Ray, thanks. Thank you, man. Ray Murphy is a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager and covers the American League beat like a field tarpaulin for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our feature expert interview with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM. Howard Bender next on Baseball HQ Radio. You've got speed at first base in Jerry Mumphrey and blistering speed at the plate in Gary Templeton. It would be very tough to double him up. Night now, about even with a bag at third, but creeping in slowly as Seaver comes back to Templeton. Bouncing ball, shortstop, Concepcion, Morgan will hold the throw at second base as they get the force out on Mumphrey, two away in the Cardinal ninth inning, and Seaver is one out away. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Howard, welcome back. It's been a while. It's definitely been a while. Thanks so much for having me back. You know, I was uh, I'm so neck deep in football sometimes because the sports all happening at once that I really do miss my baseball talk. So very excited that you uh, that you reached out to me. Uh, had such a great time the last time you and I uh, talked on the podcast. So very excited about being here today. And of course, it's uh, my pleasure to have you. I love talking to you just in general, whether it's in this venue or in other venues and face to face at the draft table. It's always a, always a good time. Uh, before we start talking baseball, I'm curious about uh, something about football. Has the uncertainty about whether and how the NFL is going to pursue its season caused any ripples in the fantasy f- football planning or is everybody just kind of gung-hoing it and saying let's just assume we're going to play a reasonably full slate and we'll live with it as it is well i think it's a it's a combination of both i think you have you have enough people um who are turning around and saying you know we can build contingencies you know if the season goes 10 weeks then we call it a full season uh adding ir spots for covid you know really learning from how fantasy baseball uh, has handled it and how MLB has handled it, I think is enabling fantasy commissioners for football to really be much more proactive uh, than it is. Um, and, you know, I mean, listen, there, there, there's obviously, there is a massive contingency, uh, you know, in this country who uh, doesn't buy into the whole COVID and, and coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, to which they think, you know, hey, listen, this is all just, you know, all talk and all flash, and I'm going to have my football season the way it is. I mean, why else would you see people protesting the Big Ten for not having a football season? It's not like they're ha- not having a football season because 
they don't want to, you know, they, they want to screw the players over. They don't want to take care of the kids in any way. They're doing it for a safety issue. So people who are protesting that obviously believe that there isn't that much of a concern. And, you know, you're still seeing, you know, we're seeing in the fantasy industry, we're seeing a lot of leagues. I'm still seeing a lot of best balls going on. I'm seeing a lot of, uh, of, of draft guide sales over at fantasy alarm. So, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of optimism here. And I think there's a, a firm belief that while yes, there, there could be some outbreaks and, and some, some issues, uh, overall, the, the general belief is, you know, glasses half full and we're going to have some football. How are your own fantasy baseball teams doing Howard? And how many of them are you playing? Um, so I've got, um, I've pared it down because my home leagues actually, you know, a lot of friends of mine really with the way baseball was handling everything, uh, and so much uncertainty that they didn't want to play this year. So I've really limited myself to, uh, to industry leagues, um, you know, tout labor FSGA, uh, I have a dynasty league in Sirius XM. I do a combo, uh, baseball football league. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, labor, I, I got crushed by COVID and, and injuries. So, I mean, I'm in 11th over there FSGA. I've actually, I'm in ninth, but I actually moved up four spots in the last two weeks, uh, as I've made a number of, uh, a number of moves in that league to, you know, kind of shore myself up. Um, you know, it's kind of funny in tout wars, uh, where you and I are in the league together, um, very, very interesting. I was, uh, I was as high as third place at one point. I'm in sixth right now. Um, I'm f- still feeling the burn, uh, of getting outbid on a couple of players. Uh, one of whom I think you actually might know. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, uh I bid a, a pretty huge amount. I think, uh, uh, as much as I had to, to beat the third place guy, I had the second place spot in the, uh, in the fab budget remainder and i decided to bet very heavily on leody Tavares, the uh, texas center fielder who just got called up and howard my thinking was that i knew i wasn't going to have the most money and i didn't think there was going to be enough star level players coming into the american league that uh, i didn't want to be sitting there with the top budget and nothing to spend it on and i i think in hindsight, I think I probably made the right choice. I wasn't going to get Jonathan VR, who's clearly the impact player coming across leagues. And if that's the case, I think Leody Tavares might be somebody I could uh, get some value out of. And I get him for an extra week compared to the guys who are waiting for this weekend's post-trade fab run. Yeah, you know what that felt like? Because I, I threw like $132 on, on Tavares and, and yours was like 700 and something. Um, it felt like, you know, uh, in, at recess time in elementary school, when the when the bully would just shove you in the face and like push you down that way. Like that's that's how I felt. I was like, wow, Patrick, you know, we have such good history together in this league. Why, why you got to be like that? Well, I have to say that had I known it was you that I was bidding against, uh, it turns out I needn't have bid nearly that much. I think the next the next highest bid was in the 400s, and I ended up bidding 715, I think it was, uh, which is a, a, a an interesting number being a big Henry Aaron fan as I am. But uh, uh, just as, you know, it's one of those choices that you make at this time of the year, and of course we have so little time to ha- have have our acquisitions take effect. It, this is in a, in a way, this is how leagues are going to very closely resemble full season 162 game leagues because 
after the trade deadline, you got, you know, three or four weeks to make your impact and that's it. And I, like I said, I just thought I'll take four weeks of uh, Tavares over possibly three weeks of the second best guy who came over. Really, I don't even know who that is, Jared Dyson or somebody like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, now you're just being mean, Patrick. <laughs> oh, did you, did you pick up, uh, did you pick up Jared Dyson? No, I oh. didn't. Why am I going to pick up Gerard Dyson? This I, dude? I mean, what, he, he steals bases and he barely does that because he's never on the field at all. Uh. Yeah. We need, yeah. uh, we need some kind of, uh, fill in outfielder position in, in Tau Wars to, to make those kind of acquisitions worthwhile. Listen, let's talk about some of the bigger names that got traded over the weekend. Uh, Probably the biggest was Jonathan VR coming over to Toronto from Miami, and then Miami turned around and got Starling Marte. So they, I think they upgraded from get, losing VR and getting Starling Marte. But what do you think about VR's chances to be a value player in Toronto for the next three weeks? Well, I'm going to have to push all my money in on on this guy. He is the he is probably the the top guy who came over from the uh, from the National League. You know, I was never really a big fan of of VR. Uh, he doesn't have a great hit tool. He's got great speed, but was having trouble adjusting to to playing in the outfield. Um, so, you know, my question really with, uh, you know, with VR is where does he play once Bichette comes back, right? Are you going to throw him at third base instead of Travis Shaw? Is he going to go back into the outfield? And, and is he going to continue to struggle there? So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a great ballpark, you know, to, to be hitting in Buffalo. Um, and maybe that'll have, you know, sort of remnants of, of what it was like for him when he was in, in Baltimore. But I mean, I'm just, he's not a guy who I really, who I love that much. And, you know, it's kind of funny when I drafted, um, I really paid a lot of attention to speed. Um, so it's, it's kind of one of my least needed categories as well. Um, but I mean, I might just have to have it just so I can hope that maybe some of that power comes back. And of course, you got to look at uh, if you're making those kind of considerations. You have to look at the categories and say to yourself, where where is there a lot of ground to be made up? And I think stolen bases is one of those categories. I just don't think anybody's going to be able to outbid Mike Gianella. He has the hammer in the Fab uh, standings, and I think he's going to be willing to swing the hammer to get what he needs. And he's going to have to spend most of it, but he's going to outbid uh, pretty much everybody. Yeah. Thanks. That makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick, did you just invite me here just to beat me up? What yeah, happened? Just, just trying to get your uh, trying to get your morale down a little bit so that uh, <laughs> maybe you throw in the towel and you're right behind me in the tout war standing. So maybe if you uh, decide you just need to switch to football full time, that's one less guy I got to worry about chasing me from behind. Uh, I know you, you have Mike Clevenger on your tout team, and he got dealt out of Cleveland into San Diego. Uh, league crossers, you get to keep their stats in tout wars, which is a good rule and good news for you that you don't have to give him up. But how do you like his value moving from a pretty good team in Cleveland to a pretty good team in San Diego, all things considered? Um, I love it. I, you know, I Listen, I, I think Clevenger is a phenomenal pitcher. Um, he was my pick, uh, not, I mean, this year and last year, actually, I just went back to back seasons with saying that he was going to be my AL Cy Young award winner. Um, I think the talent is amazing. It really is. Uh, got into a bad situation in Cleveland, uh, this year. He's, uh, he hasn't had his head in the game and maybe that was just kind of, uh, one of the things that we saw with, uh, with Clevenger, you know, the, the sent down to the alternate site. Um, and the whole thing with Zach Plesak, that was kind of a bummer. 
So we haven't really seen the Clevenger that we know, that we love, that we expect. I think we see him here in San Diego, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, the one downside I would say is when you move to the West from the Central, the Central really, you're just, you're dealing with a lot of really soft lineups, Kansas City, uh, you know, Pittsburgh you're dealing with, um, Detroit. And so he's not going to have those teams to, to really beat up on too much. Um, I mean, you know, he's got the Giants. He's got the, the, the Diamondbacks now who he's going to see. Uh, maybe the Mariners are a, are a team that you can kind of take advantage of, Texas. So, I, listen, I, I've always loved Clevenger. I think he's got fantastic stuff, and, uh, and I think this move to San Diego is going to be huge for him. Might as well stay in our Tout Wars teams. I have Jose Martinez, who is kind of a part-time player in Tampa. He got traded to the Cubs, uh, probably going to DH up in Chicago. So what do you think of Jose Martinez in new uh, stomping grounds on the north side? Well, I mean, I'd like to see Martinez, you know, grab at least 75% of that share of the DH work. They do have Victor Caratini, who's a switch hitter, and he can be on the opposite side there. They obviously, there's, there are also, uh, there are always concerns about Schwarber and his defense. Uh, so maybe he takes some at-bats over at the DH spot. But, you know, listen, I, I think if they're going to, you know, they, they could potentially move Schwarber to, uh, you know, to, to the DH spot. Uh, as much as they're going to probably put, you know, could potentially put Martinez into the outfield. So I think if he grabs about 70, 75% of the at bats at DH, um, I think that that's a, a positive move for him. Uh, again, I like the central, I like the ballparks there. And I think that, uh, you know, being in this Cubs lineup will definitely help him out. So um, I like him. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to freak out over him, but. Again, when you're trying to accrue as many at-bats as you can possibly do, a 75% share of the designated hitter role on any team is a positive. I agree with you. And, uh, of course, the Cubs also acquired outfielder Cameron Mabin from the surprisingly adroit uh, Detroit Tigers. Uh, how do you think Mabin's arrival in Chicago affects not only his own value but the playing time situation as far as uh, Martinez, Schwarber, Caratini, all these guys? It's another body in that whole mix. Uh, does that detract or is he pretty much bench fodder? Um, I think he's bench fodder. I, I just, you know, Cameron Mabin, I mean, my God. Uh, what what a long way we've come from, hey, five-tool prospect that was the, the main chip coming back in the Miguel Cabrera trade uh, between Detroit and, uh, and Miami uh, to where he is now. I mean, he's bounced around from team to team. Uh, you know what? Having a guy like Mabin there, it does detract from a guy like Schwarber. Um, if the Cubs are, have a lead, you know, Schwarber is a, a classic – you know, let's replace him defensively. Let's throw Cameron Mabin in there. He's got better range. He's a better defensive outfielder. Um, and so maybe that kind of cuts the uh, cuts down the at-bats for Schwarber as a, def- you know, as being replaced defensively. But there's just, there's not enough juice here for, uh, for Cameron Mabin for me to be interested. Atlanta acquired Tommy Malone from Baltimore for a couple of minor leaguers. He's historically been sub-replacement as a starter. He's moving to a clearly better team, but should we develop any interest in Tommy Malone at this point? Um, only if you want to lose, Patrick. Only if you want to lose. I mean, listen, the ERA and, X and, and, and FIP say it all. Um, the strand rate and K rate are both numbers that are just begging to be corrected. Still gives up too many home runs. I mean, 
you know, this this was, you know, this was Alex Anthopoulos saying, I need to fix my pitching, but I really cannot spend any money. And let me see uh, what I can kind of try and do on the cheap. Uh, and that was uh, and that was Malone. I mean, I don't I, I think the, the Braves are, you know, losers here at the trade deadline overall. And for fantasy owners to look at Tommy Malone, uh, I, I think you're just barking up the wrong tree. San Diego, of course, was one of the biggest movers in the entire operation. We mentioned Clevenger, but they also uh, got two established closers, at least established in 2020, in Trevor Rosenthal from Kansas City and Taylor Williams from Seattle. Now that the dust has settled in San Diego and they had other options as well, what do you make of the closer situation there, first of all, in the bullpen situation in the larger sense? Well, I mean, it's it's probably been one of the more disappointing bullpens. It was so powerful coming into the season, but Yates's injury, Emilio Pagan is hurt. Uh, that was that that's a, that's a huge blow uh, to the uh, to this team. Uh, you know, you've got Drew Pomerantz as a lefty who can close. You've got now Trevor Rosenthal, who you know is pitching out of his mind for Kansas City. So you know, I think that these two kind of hold down the job for for a while and. You know, we'll just kind of see what happens. But, you know, I think that this is where they're going to end up playing lefty-righty matchups between these guys. Um, and, you know, listen, I mean, who knows what happens, you know, down the road. Pagan, if he comes back, uh, you know, Dan Altavia is another right-hander who uh, always seems to be kind of like hovering in that borderline. I could pitch the sixth or I could pitch the ninth uh, sort of a situation. So I think it's going to be fluid here. I mean, if I'm – you know, if I'm in an NL only league, I'll bid on Rosenthal if I'm looking for saves. Uh, but just understand that he's not going to have this job all to himself. Staying with closers, the Phillies uh, had some disappointments with Hector Neris and their bullpen. They acquired right-hander Brandon Workman from Boston and right-hander Heath Hembry, who's not really closer material, but another bullpen piece. Uh, how do you like Workman in that bullpen situation as the primary guy? Um, you know, listen, I think that he's, uh, he's, he's a decent option. Obviously, Norris has had uh, his ups and downs. We've seen Norris be lights out. We've also seen him be a, a, a disaster. Um, and then keep an eye on David Phelps, I think. That's another one uh, who they just picked up. And I think that, you know, I think what they'll do is they'll, they'll give Workman the, uh, the save opportunities right now if he, uh, if he can't pitch on uh, multiple straight days. Uh, maybe you see Norris mixed in, but I think the leash on Norris is a lot shorter. So I think that that Workman and maybe Phelps are the guys uh, who could see the save work here, as opposed to Norris, who would just really, I mean, he would really need to be in a number of high leverage situations and pitch lights out for him to really be trusted again. San Diego acquires a couple of closers, Taylor Williams from Seattle, Trevor Rosenthal from the Royals. Uh, the Royals gave a, also got uh, Edward Oliveris in the deal, so that's not bad for them. But uh, how do you think the San Diego closer situation shakes out? Boy, this really has been a, a, a fairly disappointing bullpen, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. Kirby Yates with the injury. I thought Emilio Pagan would slide in. He didn't slide in. Um, so it's definitely been a, a bit of a battle there. I think, you know, Rosenthal, who... I mean, let's face it, that dude was pitching out of his mind. But I mean, really, is it, you know, are these stats to correct themselves or, you know, is Rosenthal, you know, hitting that fountain of youth and finding some, uh, 
you know, some glory here. I think that with the strength of this bullpen, I think that he can uh, take on at least the right-handed half of the closer's job right now. And I think that he'll stay in the mix as long as he's pitching well. Um, they will get Pomerantz in there when they need a lefty. But, uh, you know, again, I think that this is probably more of a lateral move than anything for Rosenthal. I'm not going to sit here and say that this dude's going to be, you know, mad crazy saves guy. Um, but I think he's more of like, a, I think he's a cog in the machine and the machine is doing well. So um, I, I don't mind the move to, to San Diego for him. It's obviously tough to trust him fully, but I mean, listen, it, you know, it, it go for broke now. And, and that's just the way it goes. The Athletics kind of started the frenzy to a certain extent by acquiring Tommy LaStella, uh, infielder, second baseman type guy from the Angels, and giving up uh, second baseman Franklin Barreto. First of all, how do you like LaStella's value? Second of all, how do you like Barreto's value after they change spots? Well, you know, LaStella was already seeing strong playing time with the Angels. But, I mean, I think this move definitely gives him a bump. You know, he needs to stay. I'd like to see him stay in the top of that lineup. I saw him the other day, and he was batting second. You know, between, you know, when, when, you're, when you're sandwiched in between, you know, Laureano and, and Chapman, I mean, that's, that's a pretty nice place to be uh, for a guy like LaStella. And we saw what happened when he was batting in front of, of Mike Trout. So... I think he'll, he'll play every day. I think the A's are very excited about having him just sit there at, at second base because, you know, I think when you when you look at the situation that they had there, um, you know, for me it was, uh, you know, Tony Kemp and Barreto and, you know, nobody you – know, and, and guys had uh, didn't have options, and so they, they were just kind of settling for them there. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this as a good good move here for La Stella. For Barreto – um, you know, I mean, he'll see some time while David Fletcher's out, but chances are is that he's probably not much more than bench depth at this point. He hasn't really developed, uh, you know, to where he was. The A's, they needed to either trade him because he was out of options, um, and they already had a full plate there at second, and he, especially when you, you look at the fact that Sheldon Noose was, uh, you know, on the horizon. So I think this was just, this was a, a, a nice win-now move for the A's. Um, it boosts Listella and Barreto. Nah, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not feeling it too much. If you're in a dynasty league, I wouldn't mind seeing him traded. I didn't know what to make of the Barreto part of it either. Obviously, it's a help for Oakland because they shore up a position where they were kind of rolling a few guys in and out of there. But Barreto, at one point, he was a really top prospect. I think he was involved in the Donaldson deal when Toronto acquired yeah. Josh Donaldson. He was kind of the centerpiece of that deal, and he just hasn't done anything and do you think there's an element of maybe change of scenery type of increase that uh, that that the angels are looking to acquire you know a, a, a washed up prospect who maybe they think has more talent than he's shown i mean you know it's always worth a look i mean it really is it's worth a look but the question is is you know are the angels going to make that move towards the playoffs here and if so um, you know, David Fletcher is going to be that guy. Franklin Barreto really needs to show that he can, he can earn that spot. I actually, I'm not really sure, um, what they have down in the, uh, in the farm. So maybe they do give him a little bit longer of a leash, but I mean, again, you know, yes, the change of scenery might help. They might find something that, you know, triggers him, but I'm just really, 
you know, I mean, we, we, we've seen how many times have we seen this Patrick, how many times have we seen highly touted guy who just, you know, just never has, it just doesn't have the hit tool that, that, that people were expecting scouts said one thing and it's just kind of turned into another. The Cubs acquired a couple of left-handed relievers, neither of them a particularly big name in the scheme of things. They got left-hander Andrew Chafin from Arizona and left-hander Josh Osich from Boston. Uh, obviously, they perceived a weakness in the bullpen, but neither of these guys looks particularly impressive. Uh, how much worth do you think either of them might have in Chicago? Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm not looking at either of these guys. You know, maybe they vulture a win, you know, every so often. Um, but I mean, it's not really all that much. I mean, we'll see what Chafin looks like when he comes back. I mean, he's been out with the finger issue, uh, right now. Um, you know, I mean, if I'm fishing for relievers, I want, you know, relievers who have high strikeout rates and also have that potential of moving in for saves. Uh, and, and I don't think either one of them is a factor here. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think this is one of those kind of deals where they looked at their bullpen and said, this is something we need to do to just shore things up a little bit, maybe get him, get guys into that situation where they can get a left-hander out of the bottom part of the order so they can make the, the three-man minimum or whatever the case might be. So probably not a lot of value here unless you're in some kind of extraordinarily deep league or some league that plays matchups like a Sim League or a Score Sheet League or something along those lines. Uh you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio with Patrick Davitt with Howard Bender from FantasyAlarm.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, Howard, a lot of prospects on the move. Uh, Ray and I talked briefly earlier about the fact that uh, the top seven prospects, at least as far as Baseball HQ is concerned, all went into the American League. But I'm wondering about some prospects who might have caught your eye during this trade frenzy. Uh, maybe we could start. Uh, I'd like to start anyways in Seattle with uh, Taylor Trammell. You know, he's, he's an intriguing power-speed combo. He's always had a really nice on-base percentage. Um, you know, I, I think it's a good hit tool, not a great hit tool. Um, so, you know, listen, I, I, I think that there is upside there, at least because um, it's Seattle, and I don't think that the uh, that the path to, to getting some starts in Seattle is, uh, is going to be too tough for him down the road. I'm not freaking out about him, but again – uh, if you're looking for a balanced player who can get on base, uh, he's definitely somebody who intrigues me. What I really like is, as far as in Seattle is picking up Andres Munoz. That was the guy who uh, I was pretty stoked about for them. I mean, that dude's got a uh, future closer written all over him. That fastball slider combo he's got uh, can really do some damage in the late innings kind of guy you need to be looking at now especially if your league rules allow you to pick up guys on the cheap and then hold on to them in future years and keeper dynasty formats boy oh boy there are some targets here who else do you like as far as guys who have not only future value but maybe could help teams this year ah uh, you know boston got pots and rosario maybe rosario uh if, if they give him some sort of an opportunity i don't really love uh, pots all that much, but Rosario might have a, uh, a, a little bit of value there. Um, you know, I really liked, uh, Gabriel Arias, uh, who went to Cleveland from San Diego. Great glove. I think he's a future big league shortstop. Um, and I think if Cleveland wanted to, uh, maybe take a look at him, uh, just to, you know, bring in some depth there, uh, behind Cesar Hernandez, 
Uh, I think he's an option. Uh, Josh Naylor is a uh, another guy who came over uh, in that trade. Um, you know, it's kind of funny when I look at a guy like Josh Naylor. I'm like, man, doesn't doesn't Cleveland have enough of these guys already? I mean, it's it's you know, good power for him, but I'm not really you know all that sure about uh, him being able to maintain a, a strong batting average at the major or on base percentage at the major league level. I think he's got burgeoning power. Um, but I don't think that there's uh, there's that much uh, all around. So Arius uh, going to Cleveland, that's probably uh, one that I liked uh, the most. Do you know anything about Griffin Conine, the outfielder Jeff Conine's son? Uh, went to Miami, and a lot of people thought that's because Jeff Conine is still a, a beloved figure in Miami. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, that was actually, they, they grabbed him, it was uh, Toronto who sent him, right? Right. I mean, this... I think this kid's got great raw power. I don't know about his overall game. Uh, you know, like at least his dad, you know, was was a guy who you could get steady power from and he hit for a good average. Um, he had decent on-base work. Um, I think I think Griffin Conine profiles more as a big power hitter, could be a little bit more sink or swim. Uh, I mean, it's obviously not a great location for a power guy in Miami, but um, you know, I, I definitely think that it's a, it's a nice spot for him. And yeah, listen, when you have a father who's got that kind of a pedigree and is so well liked, I mean, right. Well, he was like Mr. Marlin for, uh, for Miami. And I remember, you know, owning, you know, having Jeff Conine on a number of my fantasy teams, uh, over the years. So, you know, I, I dig it. I definitely dig it. You know, Jeff Conine, is one of those kind of guys who seem to contribute to a lot of winning baseball, including in fantasy teams. Good all-round player, as you suggested, and I don't think that the uh, acorn has fallen particularly near the uh, oak tree in this case. Not much of a fielder by all reports, and certainly great power, but not a fantastic hit tool either. Uh, Howard, uh, before I let you go, uh, during the season, as you know, I like to get our experts to talk about players who are boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for the remaining three and a half weeks here. Uh, let's start in the American League. Who's a boon hitter down the stretch? Uh, you know, I'm looking at Eddie Rosario. You know, the numbers are all in line. The strikeout rate, the walk rate. Needs the hits to bounce his way. Super low batting average on balls in play. There's a lot of struggles going on uh, at the plate for the Twins right now. I like to see him turn it around in the second part, in the uh, in, in this this month here. In the National League, who could be a boon hitter? Give me some Eugenio Suarez. Again, you know, lots of bad luck, low batting average on balls in play. You know, he's also still working his way back from the shoulder surgery. You know, just because time has passed, uh, and and they started the season later didn't necessarily mean that he was getting the swings in there to really you know kind of work himself back. So I think here in September I'll uh, I'll take a look at some uh, at some Suarez. I drafted Suarez in March in one of the either the TGFBI league or the Rasball league, and uh, the day after uh, the draft, uh, my particular t- league drafted. Uh, there was the news story that he was having this shoulder trouble, and I think. Shoulder trouble is more problematic for hitters than people really understand. And uh, I'm not at all surprised. I'm disappointed, but not at all surprised that he's been having such a lot of trouble swinging the bat. I think those kind of shoulder injuries, Howard, they can really linger for somebody who's putting as much violent uh, stress on his shoulder by swinging for, especially for a power stroke like Suarez. Yeah, I, I agree. 
I definitely agree. I mean, it's it's something I'm I'm hoping he just he builds it back up. Uh, you know, I was really big. I was I was really bullish on the Reds this season, and they really haven't delivered. You know, Mustakis has been dealing with some injuries, and Suarez has been slow to come back. So, uh, just kind of keeping my fingers crossed here, and uh, and hope that the shoulder is uh, is isn't going to be too much of an issue. A good bounce back candidate for 2021 too. I think if he gets a nice off season of rest and recuperation, or maybe gets some uh, rehab done in there. Over to the mound. How about an American League Boone pitcher? An American League Boone pitcher. I, you know what? I, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with Mike Miner. I like the move to the A's for Miner. Um, I know that we're we're looking at some uh, some shakiness from him right now. Um, you know, I mean, I, whether he's he's kind of changed up his pitch mix a little bit. Um, but I think moving like, here's another one of those situations where you're moving from, uh, just a, a terrible, terrible team, uh, in Texas. I mean, how bad was Texas been? Uh, it's been embarrassing for, for him, I think. Uh, and now he's over with the A's. I think it's a, it's a good spot to be in for him. So, you know, I'm looking at him, you know, you look at a guy, you know, you look at the, uh, the ERA, you look at the, uh, the, the FIP, the, the FIP differential, uh, between the two, you know that he's had some some bad luck there. So, you know, I'll, I'll take Mike Miner and hope that he turns it around. And in the National League, uh, Howard, how about a Boone pitcher? Okay, give me Clevenger. Give me Clevenger all day long. I, I mean, sure, it's a it's a little bit of a cop out to to take a guy like Clevenger, but I mean, again, if you look at the numbers and you look at where people were drafting Clevenger, even here in the short season, I mean, it has been a colossal bust. I mean, if this guy can nail down a few starts here and just be the dominant guy that he was, rack up some strikeouts here over the course of the month of September, uh, I think this is going to be, I I think it can be a game changer for a lot of people. And you know something, Howard, I'm not a big narrative guy in these kinds of things, and I'm not real big on guys who have something to prove, that kind of stuff. But I think this might be the exception. And Mike Clevenger really got out of a, a rough situation with that dumb and dumber routine that he did with Zach Plesak and yeah. re- really put himself in a bad position as far as what people inside baseball, people watching baseball from the outside all thought. And this might be a really rare opportunity for a player to change his situation, not just as far as the lineup behind him, not just as far as the park effects and all that kind of stuff, but that whole COVID thing, that was a real, that must have been a real blow for a guy. And maybe this is something he's going to look at as a chance to really get his ship back on its keel and, and uh, move forward aggressively. Uh, I like Mike Clevenger in San Diego just because I think he does have something to prove. As I said, I don't buy that narrative a lot, but here I do. Yeah, I, I I can I can subscribe to that as well. No doubt, no How, doubt. Howard Bender's Boons, Eddie Rosario of Minnesota, Eugenio Suarez of Cincinnati, Mike Miner of Oakland, and Mike Clevenger of San Diego. Howard, let's move over to the Baines now. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, back to the American League. Who's a Bane hitter you want no part of? I got to be honest and tell you, I'm I'm a little worried about Kyle Lewis. Uh, you know, he's been he's been amazing right now right i mean absolutely amazing but you're still dealing with a guy who uh who, who strikes out 25 percent of the time uh you know i've never really seen you know when, when you look at a guy like kyle lewis's numbers like you know uh his isolated power numbers uh, i think he's just kind of playing a little bit over his head right now it's a great opportunity for him but he's never been 
like this great of a hitter. I can appreciate the patience and the plate discipline that he's shown that he that he's got a double digit walk rate. But I, I think he's uh, I think he could be headed down the uh, down the down the trail for uh, for a downwards move this year. You're just saying that because he's on my tout roster. Um, I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that I had any knowledge that Kyle Lewis was on your tout roster. And you're still mad about me picking up uh, Tavares from Texas, <laughs> uh, who's a Bay National I, I hitter. Conf- <laughs> I, can, I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> that as well. Um, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of people have been uh, kind of riding that Donovan Solano train for the Giants and uh, and really been getting that that boost from the batting average. Um, but I mean, he's gotten a, a lot of beneficial bounces his way. Doesn't really draw much in walks. He doesn't have any power. I mean, he's got two home runs on the season. Doesn't give you much speed. So, I mean, what's he really doing for you, but helping with the batting average. And once that starts to go South a little bit, then he get then he's just rendered useless. Back over to the mound and to the American league again. Who's a Bane pitcher. Hmm. Well, I mean, listen, I think if you want to talk American league guys, I mean, I could, I could say some bad things about Lance Lynn, but he's just, he's been a little on the consistent side over the last couple of seasons here. Um, so I'll go with Christian Javier. I, I'll go Christian Javier. I think he's pitching extremely well for Houston right now. Um, but I think he's also getting uh, a, a little lucky. I think the, uh, the 167 BABIP, uh, is going to correct itself. The, uh, the the near 90% strand rate is going to correct itself. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm less bullish on Javier putting together that, uh, you know, that kind of a season. He's like, he's like that ideal fantasy trade candidate to somebody who likes to hoard youngsters. And, uh, and I don't, because if you're in a win now mentality, I think he could end up uh, having some rough starts. And finally, who's a National League pitcher who could be a Bane? Well, I mean, do we really think that we've got a resurgence here with Adam Wainwright? Is this dude really going to maintain a sub three ERA? I I have a hard time with it. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. You know, I like a lot of the a lot of the pitchers who are who are doing well in the National League right now. Guys like Zach Gallen, uh, Zach Wheeler, even a guy like Antonio Senzatella, who you know, I'll start on the road. I won't start him at home. You know, you look at these guys, Denelson, Lamette, these guys are pitching well. And these are guys who I think have the capability of, of sustaining that. So I look at a veteran like Adam Wainwright and I say, you know, I, this is kind of like a last gasp for him. Uh, and and I think that, you know, I think people who are, are, you know, saying, well, it's just a short season. And I think Wainwright will be able to at least maintain it uh, might be in for a little bit of a rude awakening at some point. 6.6 strikeouts per nine is not the stuff of which 265 earned run averages are made. I think that's a real, <laughs> uh, uh, and you mentioned uh, uh, a BABIP, I think is right around 200 and his strand rate is well over 70%. There's a lot of things pointing in the wrong direction for Adam Wainwright. Of course, that all that said, Howard, we have to acknowledge there's only three weeks left, so there's a limited amount of time for things to go wrong. But this is one of those situations where if they go wrong, they could go wrong pretty quickly. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about how detrimental it is. If your pitcher goes, let's say he he tosses three and a third innings and he gives up seven earned runs. I mean, that is that is monumental at this point in time of the season with three weeks left. I mean, one really bad outing like that could really 
uh, be the difference maker between, you know, a, a point or two in the ERA and in the whip category. So, you know, I'll play it much safer here down the stretch. I don't have to imagine those kind of outings. I had about f- five or six of them in the first two weeks of the season. So it is painful, and with so little time left, you're right, you you really have to be mindful. Uh, Howard Bender's Baines or Kyle Lewis of Seattle, Donovan Solano in San Francisco, Christian Javier in Houston, Adam Wainwright of St. Louis. Uh, Howard, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Howard Bender. Uh, you guys can find me uh, all over the pages at fantasyalarm.com. You can find me on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Monday through Friday, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, You can find me in the New York Post writing fantasy baseball and football articles as well throughout the season. Uh, And the new Anti-Up podcast, part of Fantasy Alarm on the Sawdust Podcast Network, Uh, Adam Ronis and I uh, are all over the place. And, you know, look me up on uh, on Twitter, at RotoBuzzGuy. All right, Howard, uh, a man of many media, do a terrific job in all of them, I have to say. I'm really uh, glad that I had the chance to talk to you again. Uh, have a good, safe last couple of weeks of the season. Enjoy football. I don't play it. I just watch. So uh, I hope you do really well, and I do appreciate you taking the time this afternoon. Patrick, thank you so much again for having me, man. Always a pleasure. Best of luck to you in tout this year. Uh, may I uh, May I somehow pass you in the standings, but maybe not. <laughs> Howard Bender is a content machine at Fantasy Alarm and is on the air at Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio every weekday evening. We'll take a quick break now and be back with part two of our interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire next on Baseball HQ Radio. The batter is George Hendrick as they start to their feet here at Riverfront Stadium. Bieber, one out away from the first no-hitter of his major league career and what would be the 14th in the long history of the Cincinnati Reds. George Hendrick, big, strong, right-handed batter, has gone hitless in three times. He has struck out one. Seaver pitches. Hendrick takes the strike. Now the crowd begins to roar with every pitch. Mumphrey has been forced at second. Templeton, the runner at first, two out. The strike one pitch coming to Hendrick. He swings and pops it foul, but it's going to be out of play as Donnie Warner runs to the near end of the Cincinnati dugout and it falls back in the stand. Strike two. There has never been a no-hit game pitched by a Cincinnati Reds pitcher here at Riverfront. The last Reds no-hitter thrown was back on the 30th of April, 1969 by Jim Maloney. At Crosley Field, he no-hit the Houston Astros 10 to nothing. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire. And Jason, you mentioned earlier uh, Twitter, and you're a very active and interesting Twitter presence. The other day, you posted a chart about Corbin Burns of Milwaukee, and you referred to him undergoing a rebuild, which you called fascinating. What's the story there? So, uh, and that's actually the the topic of my uh, next Collect Calls article at Rotowire that I'm finishing up today uh, with him. So, Corbin Burns, what really fascinated me with Corbin Burns was, you know, it's not like you're starting from scratch with garbage for with him. I mean, you, his numbers last year were just crazy. 
uh, in, in both ends of the spectrum. And he's somebody, when I when I looked at uh, the annual article that I write for the print magazine uh, about value from the scrap heap, he's a guy that I put in there as like, you should target this guy. Uh, in, the, in my bold prediction series, he's a guy that I said, hey, this is going to be a top, I think I said top one, yeah, top 125 pitcher. And at the time I wrote that prediction in mid-January, his ADP, he was the 183rd pitcher off the board. And what fascinated me about him was he has elite fastball spin. He has elite curveball spin, which is really slider, but elite breaking ball spin. And he throws hard. But everything else went wrong for him in 2019. He gave up 17 home runs in 49 innings. That is beyond impossible to do, but he did it. Uh, And when he got farmed down uh, in late July, he had a nine ERA. And so when you look at somebody who's got that kind of stuff, but those kind of results, all right, something had to be fixed. And with Milwaukee, what's fascinating with him is they have a, a, a double secret probation pitching lab down in Phoenix that they can send guys to. So when they send them to the minors on, on paper, they send them to double A Biloxi. But in reality, they send them to Phoenix and say, go there and start looking at things. And what they looked at and they try to, you know, when you're a guy that's given up that many home runs and, and so few innings, you have a confidence problem. And what they said to him is like, look, yeah, the results don't work, but let's, let's, let's focus on what you do well. And by the way, your slider is a really, really, really good pitch. The problem is they, you're, you pair it up with a fastball, a four seam fastball that you throw that has cut to it. So you have a really good slider and then you have a four seam that has cut to it. And those two pitches, there's not enough separation between those two pitches. So what can we do to make things look different for you? So you put them in the pitching lab. Uh, and so they ended up working, you know, they still, they changed the shape of the four seam. So it's more straight and it can get above the swing plane. Uh, then they added a cutter to them. But the, the most important pitch for him is a two seamer. Uh, and uh, you watched, and there's a, there was a great article in the Athletic that quoted Eugenio Suarez uh, and saying the first time he faced he faced Burns this year, struck out, and it was a two seam. He's like, I've never seen that pitch, and that's what I was talking about earlier. It's like that extra exposure. I want to see what that looks like the next time Burns faces Cincinnati because now they know about that. It's one thing within a game to see it, but like next time around, it's like, hey, there's no surprises. But there was a great. Our friend Dino Saris used the, the term because he interviewed the Reds pitching. Uh, he mentioned on a podcast, talk about peeling the banana. Uh, and what it's like you want your pitches to look the same as they get to the decision point of when a batter needs to swing and then everything peels out. And so for, for Burns last year, it, the banana peel didn't work because everything was cutting in to lefties and slightly away from righties, but there was nothing keeping them honest. And now you've got the slider and cutter breaking one way. you got the fastball coming up and you've got the sinker coming in. So that is the banana peel. And the batter can't just focus on the outer half of the plate and square square stuff away or as a lefty worrying about everything coming in now you got stuff going both directions and up oh and he throws six different pitches so he's like a a you darvish light in that regard where you know you can't predict what's coming and so that that's how they've rebuilt this guy um is that he's not the same guy but the thing is even last year with all the craziness he was still striking out a ton of dudes but now he's striking out a ton of dudes and not giving up the home run so he's a fascinating rebuild to watch because he's changed the way he's attacking hitters um, and now the rest of the results have caught up. Um, and even last year, if you looked at it, uh, tried to look at some of the stats like his when I, I, I put a chart up and said, look, he was very similar to Blake Snell in some of the underlying metrics in 2019. The results were completely different. But when you have a 414 BABIP, that's going to happen. But he also had a 30 percent strike rate and you know his contact rate was low. So it's like one of these things we looked at it. 
you know, he stood out there along with his numbers were very comparable to Edwin Diaz, Nick Anderson, Blake Snell, Ken Giles, all guys, and Josh Hader for that matter, all guys that we all loved, but nobody was touching Corbin Burns coming into the season because of the results. They rebuilt him, and now we now the 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 outcomes uh, are where we want him to be. Yeah, he's only given up one home run this year. I looked him up, and Corbin Burns is a $13 5 by 5 pitcher this year, and that's only because pitching has been so dominant because in an ordinary year, 278 ERA, a whip around 110, a little less actually, mm-hmm. and f- almost 50 strikeouts, I think, in 40-ish innings. So he's doing everything right uh, for sure. It's just tough to amass like top 10 value in a year when so many other guys are doing similar sorts of feats. Just one win. I mean, he opened the season. Right. He was a limited. Uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, he pitched three and two thirds because of the way they were setting. So this was the first time he's actually qualified for a win, and that that's really the struggle. If he would have had, if he has three wins, his value jumps up. But he just got his first win in his most recent start. We struck out ten Pittsburgh uh, hitters. So that's really the the impact. But again, just the the rebuild is like this is how guys can have breakout seasons. We knew the stuff was there because we saw the stuff in two thousand eighteen. But it did not work in 2019. It took him to the lab, rebuilt him, and here we are. He's having a his great season. Uh, as when you look at the underlying metrics, uh, and it's just a good lesson of you know, guys guys can change, and if they make changes, you can see results too. And if you need a win to get you started, Pittsburgh's not a bad place to start. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you, you had a couple of related posts about Lance Lynn, who's maybe been the story of the year on the pitching side, and you had a remarkable stat about his effectiveness and how he got to that effectiveness. Fill us in on that. So, you know, all things come back to Tampa Bay for me, obviously. But, you know, Lance Lynn was the guy that I wanted Tampa Bay to sign last offseason. Uh, and they gave that money to Charlie Morton. That's worked out well. Not complaining. But Lance Lynn was the guy that I wanted. Uh, and one of the things that intrigued me about Lance Lynn is, you know, if you listen to uh, me on the Sleeper and Bus podcast and anything I've talked about Rotowire, I'm a big proponent of two years post-TJ surgery is when I'm interested in the pitcher. I know guys come back before that, but the results aren't always good, and I don't want them. Uh, so with, with Lance Lynn, I thought he was rushed back from his Tommy John surgery. The results suffered from it. Uh, but when he got traded to New York uh, and from Minnesota, New York talked to him and said, look, man, you've got a good fastball. Throw it more. And he did, but it was a learning. There's a learning process. Things aren't going to click right away. But you looked you at the, quietly as Lance Lynn was pitching for the uh, Yankees in the role that he was doing. You could see the success start happening. You saw him striking out more guys. You saw his opponent's batting average dropping, uh, and it was a learning process. So then he gets to Texas, and Texas is like, "Yeah, dude, keep throwing this thing." Uh, and he's done that. And you look at the the run value on his fastball; it's one of the best in baseball. And he's uh, between uh, Fangraph's war, only Jacob deGrom has been a better pitcher than Lance Lynn since the start of the 2019 season. And to me, I think you know, the Texas Rangers could be out there trading him because he's only due $8 million next year and $2 million the rest of this year. If I'm a team in contention and can get a Haas like that for $10 million, I'm paying up that. And I've seen some rumors like they may struggle to get a top 100 prospect. That's, to me, that's ludicrous. I mean, in this market, and so many teams needing a guy to replace guys they've lost, Texas should be able to get a really good return on Lance Lynn. Um, now, you, as a if you're a Lance Lynn fantasy owner, you may be a little concerned because pitching in Globe Life Park or whatever that Costco stadium is, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been an offensive suppressor. So that's been really nice. Uh, that's been a really nice thing for him this year. But 
Lance Lynn's got a fastball. Lance Lynn could go out there and get you six, seven innings every time out and give that bullpen a rest because the way some of these teams are using the bullpen, I'm concerned they're going to be able to do that for the rest of the season. Uh, and so you've got to get somebody that can come out there and you can give your bullpen a night off every fit, every fifth outing. And, of course, there's nobody saying that Texas has to trade him either. I mean, he's a pretty good chip for them if they have aspirations next year. A lot of writing and commenting and Twittering about Sixto Sanchez. How much should we like him? Oh, man. Sixto, if you you can go back and watch the outing against Tampa Bay, it was awesome. I mean, he... What was so impressive about Sixto Sanchez is he's 22 years old, but he pitches like he's 30 years old. I mean, this is a guy that can throw 100 miles an hour. And most 22-year-olds, that's all they want to do. But what's so impressive about him is how he would use – he could throw a, a, a breaking ball, a changeup, and a fastball, and he was throwing them at any part of the count. I saw a lot of non-fastball first pitch stealing strikes because nobody goes up to the plate looking for a first pitch changeup. Nobody goes looking for a first pitch breaking ball from a starting. There's sometimes relievers, obviously, who bank on that type of thing, but you don't go up to the you don't go up there looking for that. And so he was throwing it. You saw the same thing from Pablo Lopez uh, the game after. But it was so impressive to see Sixo Sanchez use his non fastballs for strikes early in the count, throw them for strikes in other points of the count, and then leverage his changeup. He threw forty of ninety two pitches as changeups. Uh, and that's what was super impressive to me. He had almost a nearly a one to one ratio between his changeup and his fastball. Uh, fastballs because he throws both a two and a four seamer. Uh, but that, he just again his he belied his age in that outing, and it was so impressive to watch that outing. I mean, the Rays aren't aren't murderers row offense by any means, but you should go back and just watch how Sanchez executed things because. Uh, the, the peeling the banana, I tweeted a, a, a gift from Pitching Ninja. You could see three pitches coming, all in the same at bat, and all of a sudden, wham, lower right, lower left, up, and all three were swings and misses. But it was one of the most impressive pitching uh, games I've seen. And maybe it doesn't show up in the strikeouts uh, or the, the swing and miss, the overall numbers, but go watch that because the execution was phenomenal. Because even when they made contact, it was wet new contact. I know you're a pitching guy. Uh, we've been talking about pitchers. I'm interested in your opinions of two young pitchers who have started uh, just lately in the big leagues. First uh, in Cleveland, how about Tristan McKenzie? Uh, Tristan McKenzie is entertaining to me because he makes Paul Spore look like an overweight guy. Uh, I mean, honestly, when I was flipping through the game, I thought Tristan McKenzie was throwing out a first pitch as a ball as, as a ball kid uh, because he is so skinny. But my goodness, he, he he throws hard. And what was again was impressive about him was the execution of his stuff to be able to throw three pitches for strikes like that. I mean, he just he is a uh, a lean guy. Uh, but he's got he's got some gas to his arm, and, and the execution of the stuff was really impressive. So I, I liked what I saw. The problem is, as Cleveland gets as the full staff comes back, uh, well, as as Savali, uh, not Savali's Plesac and Clevenger are now coming back into the fold. What's McKenzie's role? Does he go to the bullpen? And they need help there too, because it seems like Karinchak's pitching every day, and Brad Hand's pitching every day. I mean, when you look at, and that's what killed Brad Hand last year was his heavy usage. He limped to the finish line last year, and they can't, you know, Cleveland can't afford that again this year. So maybe McKenzie is that guy that gets a unique role in the bullpen uh, and can give Karinchak a day off here and there. Because again, it seems like every time I'm opening up a Cleveland box score, it's Karinchak in hand at the end of the game. And given that I have both guys and fantasy teams i like it but you know as a guy that had hand last year i don't i don't want to see him limping towards the finish line again either and in detroit a lot of publicity for casey mize but they also called up Tariq skubel who started pretty slowly but had a real nice start and a win on saturday against minnesota 
And that was a surprising one for Tarek Skubal as well there, because that was the second time against Minnesota. So I, yeah, I wanted to bring, come back to what we were talking about earlier there. It's like, you know, his first time, uh, it was not pretty. And, and he, he, he pitched like a guy that's like, Oh my God, I'm facing the twins. Anybody in this lineup can take me deep. And he pitched like it. Well then yesterday, He's like, yeah, so what? I'm facing the Twins. And he pitched well. I mean, Tarek Skubal's got great stuff. The fastball is obviously the big winner uh, and the way he attacks it, but his breaking ball is great too. And it was impressive to see him make those adjustments in his second start against the same lineup that scared him when he looked like the first time he pitched against him. So that's where uh, I like to see that growth from the kid. He's got a bright future. Casey Mize has got a bright future, obviously. Um, but it was impressive to see what Google has. I have him in labor. Uh, I did not have him active this week, but he is going back. I think he has the twins again uh, this week. So it's like, here's a third time around, uh, you know, on three out of four starts. But I, I'm putting him on my lineup this week. Not what they usually mean when they talk about third time through the lineup. Uh, third, third time through the entire thing is is relatively rare. Yeah, I have him in tout, and, uh, and I did start him right from the start, and he did hurt me a couple of weeks, but I was glad to have him this week. And I, I like him going forward. I think there's a lot of strikeouts there. He didn't have – I think he only had two versus Minnesota on Saturday. Right. But he's, I think he's more strikeouty pitcher than that. Uh, I've been asking a lot of our experts about some general over and under performance. And since you're here and since you're a pitching guy, I want to go through the four Zacks. Uh, starting with Zach Gallon, $21 producer this year. I know people were high on him coming in, but I don't think anybody saw this coming. He's been really good. Yeah, and the changeup's been fantastic, and that's the thing. I mean, he has he's made some adjustments, and the funny thing is that Gallon came out of the Miami organization. What if they had him along with Sanchez? And, you know, that that could have been really crazy. No uh, kidding. The, the, the changeup is just so good, uh, and that's you know, I'm, I'm a believer in Zach Gallon. Uh, he had a lot of fans coming into the year, and and he has justified it by the way he's pitching. Uh, just a shame that Arizona just doesn't give a lot of offensive support. That offense has been really bad. Uh, uh, overall on the season, although Christian Walker is having a very nice week, drive leading the league uh, in RBIs this week with 10. Uh, speaking of Arizona, former Arizona Zach, uh, Zach Grinke, $15 pitcher this year, boy, he's 100 years old. He seems to be a 15 or better dollar pitcher every year, 229 ERA, uh, sub one whip. Zach Grinke, what's your general comment on on this miracle of baseball? <laughs> Yeah, and there was a lot, I mean, a lot of concern with him coming in because his velocity was really down early on. But I mean, he's, he's, it's funny to watch him throw these 58 mile an hour ethos pitches and disrupt timing. He's just such a, a master of his craft. And it's fun to watch. Uh, consistency has a price, and that's what you pay for when you get Zach Granke. There's not a big ceiling, but the floor is so incredibly high uh, with him. And he's doing this, you know, when you look at the back end of the bullpen uh, in Houston and the bullpen overall, it's had its problems. Uh, but yet he's still uh, been able to produce value despite you know, them losing Osuna and Ryan Presley being out half the year or yeah, for a few weeks. But now he already has six saves with two of them yesterday and different types of things. They've had their struggles back there, but he keeps persisting. Without looking, I'm going to give you a little snap quiz. In a career that started in 2004, so that's 17th season this year, how many times do you think Zach Greinke's had a strikeout over 10 strikeouts per, per nine innings? Once. Exactly right. Once, <laughs> uh, 2011, and barely over that at 10.5. You know, we think of Zach Greinke's low strikeouts as a natural decline from some superior high. He's always been a fairly crafty pitcher and getting getting the job done that way rather than with overpowering, overpowering velocity. I'm not going to say not overpowering stuff because he can move the ball around. Yep. Zach Plesak, 
$15 pitcher, one twenty nine oh sixty seven plus the huge brain cramp. That's you know he's looked really he's looked good uh, until the huge brain cramp, uh, and that's that's the whole Cleveland situation uh, in total. You know they have a talent. Ta- we knew they had a talented pitching staff coming into the season, and they have leveraged it to its full capabilities. And even you know even losing Clevenger and, and Plesac uh, for the suspension for the uh, team created suspension there. You know they really miss a beat, uh, and that's what's and that's what's been so impressive. But we we you know he is a good pitcher. Uh, you know, you got to hope there's some, uh, the maturity <laughs> gets better there. Uh, but the talent's there, uh, maturity has got to catch up to it though. And the last Zach is Zach Wheeler. Somebody, again, we've kind of been waiting for a long time to come around and be good every year. He's a sleeper somewhere, but this year he actually is pretty good. Two fifty eight, one twelve, a $13 starter. And again, it's a tough year to be a, a dollar starter because of so many good starters. But what do you think of Zach Wheeler? Uh, this was a guy that I was targeting uh, in drafts uh, because yeah, this to me was a change of scenery thing. And then Philadelphia being able to change the way he was doing things. I, I, they There needed to be a separation uh, of between the Mets and Wheeler and a different approach. So I think he's taken to what Philly's trying to do with him. Uh, and JT Riomuto has helped him behind the plate as well. Uh, so it's it's nice to see him be rewarded for this because this is one of these things where you can see like, okay, if he gets out of there and just try something different, uh, fewer fastballs, let's go with more sliders. And, and Zach Wheeler is, has been a nice, uh, a nice payoff for people that took the chance on him. Any concerns about a five point four strikeout per nine, though? Uh, yeah, I mean that's tough. That's obviously tough to roster in a uh, in a mixed league. Uh, for that, you want to see more with that. But if it's you know, Phillies aren't c- concerned about that. They're looking for he's working for them from a real baseball perspective. Five five four is really tough to carry in a mixed league format. But that's also where I don't have them. I was targeting the LA format so I can live with it there. Um, but yeah, long term, that's not that's not a, that's not a a good path forward. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire. And Jason, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about Boons and Baines, players you think will be good or bad for the rest of the fantasy season. I know there's not much of a season to go, but uh the trading deadline's coming up. There's still fab every weekend. There's lots of reasons to be thinking about player value. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. We'll start in the American League with a boon hitter. Well, I'm just going to go right back to what we talked about earlier, Edwin Encarnacion. I laid out the reasons where, uh, and I am I would be all in trying to acquire him this week uh, while you still can, because I know a lot of leagues shut off their transactions or their, their uh, trades uh, this week. But I laid out the reasons why I like about Encarnacion, and that's what I'm going to go with here. When is the tout trading deadline? Uh, I think it is uh, Monday. I think, yeah. Gotta look. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I better look, yeah. I didn't look at the rules this year and didn't find out about the uh, removal of the innings pitch minimum, which might have changed how I did a lot of things. Uh, Who's a boon (laughs) hitter in the National League? Uh, I'm going to go with Wilson Contreras, the catcher. I mean, catcher has been a wasteland for the most part this year. But when you look at uh, the, you take a look at the StatCats leaderboard, and there is almost a 50-point difference between his actual and his expected batting average, 130 point between his actual and expected slugging percentage. I think there's better times ahead for Wilson Contreras than as bad as catching has been this year. If you can get him, take a shot. All right, over to the mound we go. Uh, American League pitcher who could be a boon. 
this one hurts because I traded the guy uh, last week uh, to Ian Khan in, in labor, but Matt Boyd. Uh, I've been impressed with what I've seen with Matt Boyd. Uh, he's using his changeup a lot more right now. And Matt Boyd and you know, Eno tweeted it, like his first five or six starts, 40 changeups in total, and he threw, or 20 or something, but he's throwing more changes over his last two than he did his previous five outings. Matt Boyd has been tough to own. Uh, but then, you know, again, he had a great outing against Minnesota the other day. Uh, and you know, he looks like he looks like the 2019 Matt Boyd because he's throwing all three of his pitches right now. And so, again, somebody else has absorbed the bad ratios, but he was still getting strikeouts around those bad ratios. If you can get a chance to get on Matt Boyd, especially after the way he looked against Minnesota uh, the other day, uh, I'd be buying it. Also a possible trade target in the big leagues, which means he could move to a, a and would move to a, a team with a much better win record and all the benefit that derives from that. Uh, yes. Who'd you get from Matt Boyd, by the way? It was Felix Pena and Michael Chavis uh, for Boyd and Willie Castro. Um, so my National League pitcher, Michael Waka, uh, again, my, expect that he is, if you take a look at his numbers, uh, his his results uh, are below where they should be. The expected stats are much better across the board, and I'm willing to take a chance on Michael Waka the rest of the way. Jason Collette's Boone's Edwin Encarnacion of the White Sox from your lips to God's ear, may I just say. Uh, Wilson <laughs> Contreras of the Cubs, Matt Boyd of Detroit, Michael Walk of the Mets. Let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, Bain, American League hitter. Uh, Bain, American League hitter for me is Hanser Alberto. Uh, but then again, Hanser Alberto has been overperforming all year, I mean, last year he was the guy that just obliterated left-handed pitching, and he's still good at that. But for me, I keep waiting for him to come down, and that gets back to my uh, Santander talk earlier. I mean, Hanser Alberto hits in front of Santander. If he comes down, then Santander gets affected as well. But Alberto, the expected stats just do not line up with what he's doing. Eventually, that has to cave. It has to. Uh, but, but he keeps outpacing it. I, I, I just don't see how he does it, and that's, to me, uh, it, that's a risk for me. I have to say that at Baseball HQ in February, they ran a player analysis that says nowhere but down to go for Alberto. <laughs> and sooner or later, that's going to be right. A uh, National League hitter who could be a Bane. Uh, I'm looking at Austin Barnes. Austin Barnes, now his playing time's a little bit impacted with the return of Will Smith, the catcher, but Austin Barnes has you know, really out in front of the skis uh, on batting. He's hitting like 280 in the last two years. He's hit 204, 203. I mean, if you if you had Austin Barnes, enjoy what you've had because there are bad times ahead from what's left. I know catcher is such a wasteland, but maybe there's better chance. Like if you're in a league where you can swap out Austin Barnes for Wilson Contreras, that's a good game if that's possible. But uh, Austin Barnes is giving you as much as he's going to give you. Over to the mound again, back to the American League. Who's a pitcher? Who's a Bane? Uh, I'm going to go with Dallas Keuchel. And I love I love the White Sox this year. I picked them as a team to click this year. But Dallas Keuchel uh, is, is pitching out in front of the skis. I mean, everything I said about uh, Michael Waka, you can look it up for Keuchel, and it's the exact opposite. He's been getting away with a lot. That eventually, you, that tax eventually comes back to hit you, uh, and I'm worried about Dallas Keuchel's production the rest of the way. And by the way, I love that you picked a White Sox and then said pick to click. Takes me back to the uh, to the Hawk. Uh, and finally, a <laughs> National League pitcher who's a bane. Uh, Zach Davies, uh, you know, he's done well, surprisingly well in San Diego, but uh, a lot of the same things, the stuff uh, and the and the skills don't match what he's done. Uh, and I th I believe, you know, he's had seven decisions, five and two out of it. But it's when you look at the foundation, that's not something you can expect to go forward. But 
we also then have also breaking news that the Padres have just traded for Mitch Moreland. Uh, so you know, maybe he'll have some more run support uh, over there in San Diego as well, like as if they need it uh, the way they've been hitting. But the Padres just added Mitch Moreland. Where does Moreland fit in in San Diego, do you think? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what, you know, where do you depth? I guess I'd, I'd be a little concerned from a fantasy perspective because he's going to, uh, you know, at least in Boston, he was playing every day against righties and then sometimes sitting against lefties and coming off the bench. But I, I think this actually hurts his value. I do too. Uh, maybe some DH uh, time available as well. But yeah, I, I actually added uh, Mitch Moreland in a couple of leagues and I was pretty happy about it. Now I'm not so happy about it. Uh, Jason Collette's Baines, Hanser Alberto of Baltimore, Austin Barnes of the Dodgers, Dallas Keuchel of Chicago, and Zach Davies of San Diego. Great stuff. Jason, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Jason Collette. So uh, on Twitter at Jason Collette, uh, at Rotowire every Monday, the Collette columns, uh, the Collette calls column uh, is published. And I said this week is going to be a breakdown of Corbin Burns and why uh, he is having this type of success. And, and mostly it, it's a, uh, a theme to say, hey, why, you know, why is this guy doing well? It's not about looking at, you know, yeah, you've already got Corbin Burns. He's not going to be on a roster, but it's more of a lesson of why. And then I'll tell you uh, next week, I'm going to write about Shane Bieber because Shane Bieber is somebody like... Corbin Burns is somebody I was recommending to everybody. Shane Bieber is somebody I faded, and I am paying that price. I didn't. I wanted nothing of Shane Bieber. I I said, hey, this isn't going to work. I didn't think this was going to work. I didn't want to pay that price, and he is pitching like a Cy Young pitcher, and I was wrong on that. And so I'm going to write next week about how wrong I was on Shane Bieber, or at least look into. And maybe I wasn't wrong, but right now Shane Bieber is making me look stupid, as well as Corbin Burns is making me look like a genius. So I'm going both ways on this. Earlier in the year, I had somebody who picked Shane Bieber as his American League boo- a Bane pitcher. Couldn't couldn't keep it up. Was the uh, was the analysis, and it, and it was a good analysis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jason, thanks very much for helping us out. It's always interesting to talk with you. I do appreciate it. I guess there's no first pitch Arizona this year, but sooner or later we'll catch up again. Uh, buy a beer and uh, we'll talk baseball. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed this, man. Jason Collette writes regularly for Rotowire. And the fun keeps coming here on our pod. Stay with us for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Hey, Taxi! And extra innings next on Baseball HQ Radio. Bieber is a strike away. He stretches. He checks the runner. He pitches. He pitches high a fastball, and it's one and two. They are standing all over the ballpark. Hendrick waiting on Bieber's one-two pitch. Tom sets, he kicks and fires. He pops it up and it's going to be out of play, directly back of the plate. So Tom Seaver, now a strike away from his first major league no-hitter. The Reds leading at four to nothing in the ninth inning. Hendrick puts ahead of the bat on the plate. Werner hangs the sign. Seaver with a pause, the check and the pitch. He bounces to first base. Dreesen has it. He goes to the bag and Seaver's got it. Bob Seaver has pitched his first major league no-hitter. And this one belongs to the Reds. Seaver is being mobbed at first base as George Hendrick bounces a routine two-hopper to Danny Dreesen and the 38,216 at Riverfront Stadium are standing. Baseball HQ Radio. (laughs) 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's Hey Taxi, a commentary on players who are on Major League Baseball taxi squads, but who might get enough playing time and produce enough to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Arizona's starting pitcher Levi Kelly is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Hey Taxi, beep beep. What do you think of Levi Kelly? Currently training at the Arizona Diamondbacks alternate facility in Scottsdale, Arizona, 21-year-old Diamondback starting pitcher Levi Kelly has made quite an impression. The 6'4 righty from West Virginia features a high 90s fastball and an aggressive slider that has already produced ample whiffs. In fact, in 22 starts for the Class A Kane County Cougars in 2019, Levi Kelly struck out 126 batters in only 100 innings pitched. Pretty impressive. Of course, his 2.15 ERA and his 111 whip in those 22 starts were equally impressive. While it's unclear if Levi Kelly will make his Major League debut this year, the Diamondbacks have shown a willingness to promote and play young players this season, especially after the trade deadline. According to a recent September 3rd Arizona Central article, Diamondbacks manager Tori Lovello reportedly admitted to having conversations with his veteran players about their anticipated playing time over the final 23 games. In other words... A Levi Kelly sighting is not necessarily probable, but is still entirely possible. So hey, taxi, beep beep, meter's running. Levi Kelly is waiting. Pick him up. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to just offer a bit of a summary of the trade deadline action. The deadline trades every year have the potential to provide value opportunities for fantasy owners, and this year was a real bonanza especially for owners in National League-only formats who saw some pretty good talent cross over into the senior circuit. This weekend, National League-only owners might go shopping for hitting help, with playable catchers like Austin Nola and Jason Castro, now in San Diego, and the barely playable catcher Robinson Chirinos, who moves to the Mets. There's some playable corner guys like Mitch Moreland, another member of the small army of talent headed to San Diego, and Jose Martinez, now in the Chicago Cubs, and Todd Frazier in New York. There's a playable outfielder in Brian Goodwin who looks in line for playing time in Cincinnati. And on the pitching side, the shelves are bursting with an ace-quality starter in Mike Clevenger. There's saves help with Trevor Rosenthal and Taylor Williams coming to San Diego. And as we discussed with Nick earlier in the National League news, Archie Bradley moving to Cincinnati, where Isaac Iglesias has delivered wobbly results despite solid skills. And there's Brandon Workman shoring up the back end of a shaky Philadelphia bullpen. And there are some useful Lima guys if you don't have the big fab bucks. Look at Miguel Castro, traded to the Mets. There's David Hale, a new Philly. And Michael Givens, now somewhat ominously, I know, in Colorado. For American League-only owners, the pickings are more meager at the major league level. Really, the only potential impact guy is Jonathan Villar, as we discussed with Ray earlier, but at this point, he looks like he might only help in bags. He has a 635 OPS this year and just two home runs on the season. He's two for his first 13 with the Jays with no home runs, no bags, no runs, and one RBI. So buyer beware. 
Otherwise, American League owners can poke through the bottom of the bin for hitters like Dan Vogelback, a DH-only type guy now in Toronto who couldn't stay on the roster in Seattle, and that tells you something. There's Edward Olivares, a promising but untested outfielder, sporting an early 205 batting average with one homer and no bags in 39 at-bats. He moves over to Kansas City, where he might have raised Fabster's eyebrows going two for his first five and scoring a couple of runs from the six-hole in the order. There's a poor man's stolen base threat in Gerard Dyson, who has four bags but is batting 154 with an on-base percentage of 214. So he's probably a bench option, pinch runner, late defender type for the White Sox. Some value there depends on how your stolen base category is looking. And there's outfield depth in Brett Phillips, who took his three bags in 31 at-bats, but an accompanying 226 batting average that goes from Kansas City to the Rays. On the pitching side, the slim AL pickings include Taiwan Walker, Robbie Ray, Ross Stripling, all now in Toronto. I've never been a Robbie Ray fan, but as I said in the Market Watch segment, if Toronto adjusts Ray's usage as they showed they might in his first outing, he could be sneaky good here. For his career, his third time through penalty has been bad. His ERA of 345 over the first two times, 685 the third time through. A whip of 131 the first two times, 157 the third time through. Home run per fly ball rate, 13% versus 22%. His walk rate, pretty much a wash at 10% all times through. And listen to this, opponent's OPS first time through, about 700. Third time through, 998. And this season, the third time through the order penalty has been even worse. His ERA over 18, a whip of 346, home run per fly ball rate of 33%, a walk rate approaching 30%, and an opponent's OPS of 1286. But in his first outing for Toronto, they brought him into the game in the third inning. He faced just 15 batters and had four strikeouts and only one walk. He did give up a home run, though, in just four fly balls for a 25% home run per fly ball rate. It's a small sample, but it has been a problem for Robbie Ray. Now, to be fair about the whole trade situation, the American League got by far the biggest haul of prospects, as Ray and I discussed earlier and as Howard and I touched on. Some of these guys... Ty France jumps to mind in Seattle, will be up for bids this weekend as well. And in mixed leagues, there will be opportunities to take advantage of players who gain value as aftershocks from the deals as players leave their rosters. Think of Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers and whoever you think might get the save opportunities in Baltimore, Hunter Harvey, Tanner Scott, guys like that. Other players lose value when incoming acquisitions join rosters, like Caratini in Chicago, maybe David Dahl, Garrett Hampson, Sam Hilliard all in Colorado. Think about that before you make any decisions. And before I sign off, I'd just like to say how sorry I was to hear about the passing of Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver this week. I remember Seaver from when I was just becoming a baseball fan. Up here in Canada, we start with hockey and usually a bit with the CFL. It was hard not to be a baseball fan during that 1969 pennant race with the Miracle Mets chasing down the front-running Cubs in one of the greatest, thrillingest chases ever. Of course, we didn't get to see much of the actual game action in those days. We had to live vicariously through the box scores. And truth be told, I was pretty young, and I don't directly remember Seaver's stretch run performance. So I looked it up at BaseballReference.com, and all Seaver did in September of 1969 with a pennant on the line was start six games, half of them on short rest, including a pivotal start against the Cubs. In those six games, he had six complete game wins, two shutouts, and rang up an 0.83 ERA and an 0.74 whip. He held his opponents 
to a 400 OPS over that period. Oddly, considering his reputation, he had only 33 strikeouts over those 54 innings, a DOM rate of just 5.5 strikeouts per nine, which sounds weird in this day and age, but was pretty normal back then. Later, of course, Tom Seaver pitched for my favorite team, the Cincinnati Reds. You might have heard his one career no-hitter in Riverfront Stadium during this show. In his five full seasons, he had a 3.33 ERA and a 12.17 whip, not too shabby for a guy in his age 33 through 37 seasons. And of course, he did have that no-hitter. Overall, what a career. Three Cy Young Awards, five National League strikeout titles, a 2.86 career ERA, and of course, election to the Hall of Fame with what was at the time the highest vote percentage ever. Tom Seaver, he really was terrific, and he will be missed. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday full edition, Jason Collette from Rotowire and Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm and Sirius XM. Jason is a fine analyst and writer at Rotowire and a great guest here on the pod. And Howard, well, what can I say? He's just a gas to talk with. Great energy, great love for the game, and an encyclopedic knowledge that he's more than willing to share with us. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And our Hey Tech Say commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to your podcatcher and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review, a good rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and that in turn helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Stay safe. Wear your mask to keep other people safe. I'll talk to you next week and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.